Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. was a very excitable guy and pretty sadistic. Uh, would go out of control a great deal. I remember uh, a scene that I walked over to Vitagraph Lock where they were making it and they let go with about 50 dump tanks and a big reservoir with extras in the path of this flood. Not stunt people, you know. tumbling down topsy-turvy, the Curtis screaming at him from the sidelines and throwing two before the end of the flood because they started to stand up and panic. The star of the film was Dolores Costello. It was brutal. Uh, I called it mud, blood, and flood. It was much blood. Mr. Cortez had been told which were the breakaways, which were the permanent parts of the set and they had long-horned steer in there, and human beings, and some dummies. But he put the human beings where the real set was, and the dummies where the breakaway was, because he wanted realism, as he called it. There were people injured. I found a man leaning against my dressing room door, which was really an office. And he was heavily bandaged. And I said, what's wrong? He said, 38 ambulances have left. I'm in better condition than most of them. And they're coming back for me. And he said, I think somebody's been killed. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo is about to be submerged by the waters of ambition, grand scale, and unfathomable filmic feats that one could only describe as biblical. Now, don't be perturbed, folks, by that almighty word. For if you think you know the story of a man named Noah from the pages of that book in the drawer of your hotel room, Hollywood at the dawn of sound and the decay of silence has a rude awakening to your perception of the good book tales. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, tonight the Ballyhoo carefully treads into the discussion of silent cinema and its decay with a presentation of the part-talky 1928 Michael Curtiz epic, Noah's Ark. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. What? Oh, my. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I've just been informed that our customary clip for the folks at home will be rather pointless in many ways. The sound in this film itself could altogether be pointless. But if you will, let's take a moment and watch the film unfold, shall we? Ah, there we were. The film has now been seen, I assure you. Our silence was the audience rendered speechless by the 75% of the film that captures Hollywood at some of its grandest scale without a word being spoken. And yet, now that we have seen the picture, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, part Bible story, part World War II melodrama that leapt to the silver screen under the determination of Michael Curtiz is one for the industry's books, though not in the way that it was for folks like DeMille. Well, the film has a successful box office capture and an adequate response and its ambition is lauded in many areas the film the film's legacy carries with it a sad tale of the lack of concern for folks in the workforce and the audacity of an industry just learning to talk without realizing what they were losing in the process just how is noah's ark seen today and what lessons does it hold for the modern filmmaker and film audience well to answer this we need the help of a wit that is as ageless as the gods in the clouds herself he is a comedian and writer whose biting humor has dug into the truth of this world throughout the Denver area for many a year. And today he will be asked to build not an arc, but an argument or two about this film's legacy and how it stands into the importance of the world of cinema. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Andrew Bueno. Hello. Hello. That is so sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to the introduction. Now here comes the part where I grill you. Um, it's been said that you're a comedian. Well, I don't find you funny. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. <laughs> that is not true. I've told you many times that you are among my favorite comedians. It would have been a big point of confusion. Just like, wait, why? <laughs> We're not here to talk why about Noah's here? Ark. <laughs> We're here to talk about what I don't find funny. You know what I don't find funny? X-Men jokes. <laughs> it's, it's not your skill set that brought you here. It's your perspective on, on <laughs> workplace tragedies. I know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, we, we, you say that you're funny, but I don't find work conditions hilarious. <laughs> listen we gotta we gotta try harder for people <laughs> just do you just you know what you do next time you go onto a stage is just go up there and be like guys i used to have a, a whole range of jokes from a to z but instead i am here to talk about the cruel working conditions of the common man <laughs> i'm gonna do 20 on the triangle shirtwaist factory fire <laughs> You've seen this? You heard about this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you literally just do it like a like a Johnny Carson monologue. Have you heard about this? Have you heard about this? That actually that is kind of been the challenge of the past couple of years is really just yeah trying to not go into as many anarchist rants as I feel like are necessary <laughs> on a day to day level. You just do you just wake up and shout in the mirror first and then go like 
All right. Now I can talk about what it's like to be in traffic. <laughs> yeah, it has influenced my time, I think, with like pets and babies. I'm just like <laughs> any creatures that just want to be engaged, like and hear a person's voice. Just like, OK, you're going to get a lot of uh, of who who needs to get a brick in, in terms of <laughs> dogs and babies. Our current political climate. I didn't think. I didn't think re- W.C. Fields' character, not him, but his character, would reincarnate <laughs> himself into you. <laughs> but here we are. Um, welcome, buddy. Um, now, for the audience at home who may not know you, um, uh, shame on you, audience. <laughs> I've known you for over a decade, as you kindly reminded me <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> it's been about that long, yeah. <laughs> I don't understand what the point is of making me feel old, but you did it today. <laughs> You are a man out of time. <laughs> that is true. I've, I've, yeah. I've always been 39 to some extent <laughs> or another. Um, but no, you um, uh, you've been uh, you were instrumental in my uh, getting to this point, because I remember we went to film school together for the context of the audience. And I'll never forget that you uh, we were talking about gangster movies at one point, And I think I was talking about Angels with Dirty Faces at some point, And you were just like, have you seen White Heat? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I haven't seen White Heat. And he's like, and, and Andrew, without blinking, went, you need to watch White Heat. <laughs> and oh, and it does rule. <laughs> that, that it is it is one of those films that takes you aback with its brutality. And I remember I'd already had the DVD because I got that collection, uh, mm-hmm. that Warner Brothers collection, which I've now reacquired not just the first volume, but all four volumes of that thing now. <laughs> um, thanks to Second Spin when you used to exist. Um, but, um, uh, the, uh, but the, the, that, that never left my head. And then you also, you also encouraged a lot of noir in, in my film education. Yeah. I think there was, um, it was in early in education into, in terms of how, like you kind of approach film school and the stuff around it, but just sort of being cognizant of, of the arc around the code area. And also even with our discussion, you know, what we are going to be discussing today Mm -hmm. the the losses and sort of kinetic film language and those transition points between a lot of different film types it was like and and white he of course is beyond that but yeah there's so many things that they're still a part of the canon but they're not largely discussed in their importance we're like right white heat i think if you watch that it is keystone to a lot of crime film and a lot of like modern film noir and a lot of concepts behind the work of like i don't I don't think Scorsese would be the same without it. I don't think a lot of other filmmakers mm-hmm. would be the same without it. And it's not always put in that context. No, and- it's. I think it's the way that I've heard it from the Scorsese realm is more or less that the dimensions that his characters are allowed to have primarily come from White Heat. Um, the, the the foundation building blocks come from Public Enemy and Little Caesar mm-hmm. and stuff like that because they they're going to yeah um and any heart might come from an Angels with Dirty Faces or even a Petrified Forest uh, or Roaring Twenties but the White Heat is what allows these people to be maniacs mm-hmm. I think that the big thing with White Heat is is that Cody Jarrett is just insane. And that that has a direct lineage to Tommy in Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. It has a it even has in some ways, uh, it definitely has a lineage to to Pesci's character in Casino, Nikki Santoro. Uh, Nikki Santoro, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, there's another way to look at it too, where you look at some of the quieter characters in those early gangster films that then carry on into uh the the smaller but more menacing characters in Scorsese, but also in any crime film in general, like. 
these guys are allowed to be psychopaths thanks to to white heat it it gave them an an opening (laughs) and psychopaths with a mom yeah (laughs) doing her best but not not successful without white heat there wouldn't be psycho yeah (laughs) that's what i'm saying robert block saw white heat and said say what if this but a motel (laughs) (laughs) what if this but ed gein um but you're right we aren't here to talk about gangster films we're here to talk about a very a very uh, strange film I, I would I would I, I would say so like oh, Lord, it is. yeah so before but before we get into to the talk of Noah's Ark let I want to have the audience learn a bit about your experience with Golden Age Hollywood what was your first encounter with it and what what made you compelled by what compelled you to keep going with it in any respect or form I think that and it was interesting seeing getting to understand what was lost into the transition of the World War II era of filmmaking, just in, in how how filmmaking techniques seemed to advance for, you know, a good 20 years or so in relation to our incorporation of, of new techniques, but also how in that uh, that language developed around, like, specifically so much, like, foreign talent who ingratiate themselves in the Hollywood system and stuff like that. I think the the golden age of understanding the work process that actually contributes to to what we have now and how it was developed through that Canada has been like I think it was it was something that just understanding how we've always kind of been held with this regard of, of the development of technology and our understanding of, of how things are headed and not really being able to register the importance mm-hmm. of, of where the foundations were laid and how, and then that I think it really like it, my affection and the growth of that in my heart was sort of a developmental along with like just what it means to look at that era as how the work process of our daily lives were going at that moment too, yeah. especially for film school and stuff like that. Yeah. Cause that was like, that, that that's the thing I think that helps us as film fans and film enthusiasts get further involved into these earlier eras is that we're, once we've understood the filmmaking process, once we've understood how we make a movie, like the simple production process, simple yeah (laughs) that's a funny word (laughs) simple um but you start to realize the complexity and even at times the insanity of how the 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 process was and what has still translated to this moment and what has been removed i think the development of that work process into like if i you know in terms of favorites in terms of like sticking points for for development of taste like Seeing seeing the myth making work of like John Ford and seeing the application behind how these techniques eventually contribute to what becomes a framing of like what stories are in general right. <laughs> in material through time and just understanding like, oh, it was be- not to say because consoli, but just like, oh, that's the value of a good work process <laughs> that apparently right. <laughs> you could imprint on the mind of 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 society. You, you're also watching the evolution of how we as a culture digest stories yeah. in general and, and through that visual language. You know, I'm not the world's biggest Ford fan, but it's inarguable that his his visual his visual acumen is responsible for a lot of the very simple storytelling techniques that we utilize and you can look back into the silent era with whether it's <laughs> ford or uh even the works of people who weren't known in the in, in the industry history books like Alice Guy Blachet mm-hmm. um who these people formed our visual language that we dissect as a culture even when it's not a movie 
now we have a reference point for anything that comes up in in that's even slightly tangentially connected to the visual language of cinema because it's so embedded into our culture at this point that you can't escape it. Yeah. It's funny to think about John Ford, not to digress too much, but just in the era of like a oh, big influence on film and hotel art of the Southwest. Oh, <laughs> like the oh, vistas of... oh my God. A seemingly endless row of like, I get it. Mm-hmm. It's the landscape <laughs> of the West. I understand. There's a coyote there. Maybe he's after a roadrunner. Who Utah knows? Utah and Nevada and California are so beautiful, but it is almost just like, oh, I've seen <laughs> it before. Yeah. That's why people who live in California don't go visit the desert. They already, they, they're inundated by murals across the city. Yeah. And I also think that like, within a context of our of our conceptual morality about what it means to try to make things and try to like see the point in, in media too is seeing how it developed within the work process that were around the golden age and Mm -hmm. like the, the systems, the contract systems and things that were in place, all wonderful roadmaps of how not to treat human beings. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's, it's so weird that like in many respects, there's a majesty to golden age Hollywood. There's also, it's, it's also a big instruction manual of, Hey, maybe don't do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's, I, (laughs) we don't give DW Griffith a career. Maybe just don't. Yeah. Maybe, maybe just, uh, sidestep that a little bit. (laughs) You can do other things, bud. Maybe you're going to make navel gazing. Maybe give, maybe give George Millier more things to do. How about that? Let's get, let's get, some more expressionists and i actually i think in terms of like the influx of of european directors from that period it's just like yeah let's get dw less work yeah i want to see him less yeah what's that oh he's gonna make uh a dream street and he's gonna do a sound prologue it's like yeah i'm sorry but you kind of ruined yourself with that one thing you innovated (laughs) not that it's 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 weird because like the but you're you're talking about like it's cinema it's earliest conception i'm actually curious though for you you as a person like what do you can you recall the first film from this era that you would have seen can you can you even trace it back or is it it probably would have been i feel like stagecoach is one of probably the as like a kid because so it was just my grandmother was big into western so okay. it was sort of like that was maybe my gateway into a lot of those early films and i think as things move forward, I'm also mixing up my errors a little bit, but like in terms of actually just being an outright favorite film, it's a little, you know, it's passe as shit, but like Casablanca is yeah. like as, as just a touchstone of like knowing you must remember this as just a strain of like the cultural DNA that I just didn't know of until mm-hmm. I saw that movie when I think I was maybe in my early twenties. Yeah. I was just like, Oh yeah, this is, I think it, there's, even having, I think, sometimes preloaded notions. I think even, like, having the training to appreciate, like, semi-silent film and stuff is really nice. But I can understand, I think, some people's inclination to kind of have that, like, man, this is why I wish I didn't go to college sort of thought of, like, <laughs> of, like older media are working are looking to things. But when you see the myth-making in, in its, like, efficacy, when you see it... I think especially in, like, a training context, but now even just in, in an entertainment value thing when a thread lasts through time, <laughs> you're just like, oh, oh, that's like, if you can, if you can find that knowledge and appreciation and what becomes universal from filmmaking. That, that spark. That yeah. That yeah. spark of real, realize, real, realizing the importance of the touchstone rather just to, than just accepting the touchstone. Yeah. You, you understand what it means to actually add to the canon. And this was those first steps into building a canon, creating an actual framework for what we would be able to look at film as 
like a feature art form and because it's easy to take tropes for granted i think yeah. i feel like I, i've i've come across more uh, more appreciation for it's a wonderful life as a film <laughs> and not as a christmas movie mm-hmm. than i have in years because people are sitting down and actually watching the film unfold and realizing that christmas takes place in the last maybe 30 to 40 minutes of the movie it's not the predominating theme of that film or you know finding that yes gone with the wind is majestic and sweeping and it's a, it's a it's a rip roaring saga of the of the of the south but it is also rather long yeah. and, and rather boring and and filled with trouble and i think that but but that doesn't take away its importance but you, but you if you're able to tap into gone with the wind without walking out terrible <laughs> um then you you can understand the mat you can understand the touchstone and i think it's easy for something as amazing as casablanca i feel like yeah. that's the, that's the touchstone that i'm like if somebody doesn't understand casablanca i i mean i'm not gonna have disrespect for them but i it throws me for a loop because i'm like all the ingredients are there i guess i just don't understand yeah i also think that like lacking a historical context or enough mm-hmm. like you you have to you have to be able to meter yourself in terms of how you read images and, and what it means to to view things at the level that they exist at um but also you have to sort of see the how much intelligence and and just general like force of will it took to say put something through that's a little weird to get to get like a and I, it was a stage play, but like to get like an arsenic and old lace through the line or something yeah. or like to, to figure out means to inflect stories that still have teeth yeah. inside a system that really does not want that. No, no, that's and that's the weird thing. Our classics are so formed by going outside the box. Mm-hmm. And yet once those things become a part of the box, it makes the industry even more hesitant to step outside the box. It's gotten more scared as time has gone on because you can't i don't think you can even count the american new wave in that respect because that was also a decision out of fear yeah that was a decision of we don't know what we're doing we're a coke company we don't know what's going on get steven spielberg yeah there you go steven go go do the thing with shock like you know. there was almost and, and it's not not framed like this necessarily but sometimes it feels conceptually like it it feels like the point where where a system, at least for a time, and it's funny to discuss it now with what's happening with some of like the bigger studios of like, oh, the studio's kind of lost. Like they lost yeah. their framework for what it means to produce inside of an artistic context to directors. And that being the transition point out of the golden age, not one of the only, but one of the more prevalent. I think it, it's because I think it's twofold. It's what you said. And it's also they lost their ability to mass produce. Yeah. That's like, I mean, like... By the time you got to Casablanca, I think I think in people who are interviewed get taken out of context when they say this. But like the Casablanca making of documentary, which I'm sure you've seen and I'm sure everybody else has seen. <laughs> and if you listen to our episode with Matt Willicks on it, if you didn't watch it, then I don't even know why you're listening to the show. Is this because you hate joy? <laughs> um, but uh, no, the uh, but that documentary has excuse me, that documentary has. Uh, Julius Epstein going like they were making a picture a week, fifty two pictures a year, yeah. and it's like, well, by the time he got to the forties, especially with the war, that was not necessarily the entire case. But there was a point when this was a picture a week mentality. This was a staff job you went to and made a film 
Like there was there was a constant rotation of projects happening like a factory. And what was amazing is that because of the talent that they were able to emigrate from other countries and grow inside the industry at home as well, each personality stepped outside of the box, it seems more or less because they wanted to have fun if they're going to get paid for cranking out the same kind of product over and over again. The director we're talking about today, who we've touched on before in Casablanca, he is one of those examples. It's yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to come over to Hollywood and crank out the film, the the the, the hundred and something films that I'm going to have to my name, but I'm going to inflect it with what I do best. And each director does that. Fritz Long did it when he came to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, not always to success, as we discussed with the movie You and Me, which is a... a, a, a I like the film, but it's like it, the story on its surface is just is trashy. Mm-hmm. But but it's but it's a cute mel- enough melodrama that when you stick Fritz Long's aesthetic on it, it somehow pops. I'm curious. There's there's almost a measure of like the infinite return of of a hundred years of seeing this era of like mm-hmm. such over content production oriented things, or even like the scale of matching Fritz Lang with like a commercial system, the same way you would throw like a through an art house director at a Marvel movie. These days, you, which you, is va- like... you want me to direct a what? <laughs> An iron man. <laughs> this sounds absolutely fucking stupid. Now, okay. if he was a, now if, if this iron man was say a murderer in the streets of Berlin, I'd <laughs> say that would be a great idea. The iron lady with, with <laughs> formed lady. <laughs> robot parts what if, and instead of superhero what if she was i don't know like a robot built by a system of labor that needs to be crushed <laughs> what if was allegory for the <laughs> subjugation alleg- of the working class but <laughs> just let me make metropolis it would have been a better movie than iron man <laughs> what, what what if instead of thanos i just do a movie called women on the moon <laughs> <laughs> It could work. <laughs> it, it could work. I'm just saying, look, I understand that you want Captain America, but what instead <laughs> what if instead you had corrupt captain of police? <laughs> I think it's so it's so odd how yeah, how much we find ourselves back in the environments that we like. Didn't we invent a way out of this hundred years ago? Didn't we figure this out? <laughs> but No, no, David. <laughs> I, Alfred Hitchcock, will not direct Batman. Oh. I don't even understand what a Batman is. <laughs> Is it, a, it now? If it were a man bat, <laughs> didn't say <laughs> I could play with that for a minute. You did name a project that I would like if I could through force of like in heaven, <laughs> like Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock Batman movie. Can you make like the James, James Stewart as Bruce Wayne <laughs> Batman that I've won for some reason? <laughs> Alfred, pull up the file on the Joker. Oh my god, he's poisoned the whole set. <laughs> How about a battle? <laughs> you want the moon, Selena? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> that would make that scene make more sense, I think. <laughs> Mistletoe. Oh no, it's 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 Betty Davis. Mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. But a kiss can be deadly if you mean it. <laughs> it would make more sense on a rooftop. Oh my <laughs> god! Both dressed in leather. Oh my god! Edmund Gwen is the penguin. <laughs> <laughs> God, there. Yeah, I think that is one of those projects that I would. Lo- I would love to see. It's 
it's developed in the 30s, released in the 40s equivalent. Goddamn World War II for for taking a, there. There would have been an early like version of uh, the MCU under DC with Batman and Superman. Had it oh not been God. for the war, had it not been for the war, the <laughs> we MCU would have got it out of the way. Yeah, we, we wouldn't be doing it now. That's oh my God! You know that explains this one piece of uh, literature that I read not too long ago, where it basically said like, and then the project was to conceive an entire group of superheroes when all of a sudden Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I can't remember what book it was. I think it was the mad ravings of Stan Lee exclamation point. <laughs> I actually, actually when one of our, uh, one of our episodes we've just pre-recorded, um, it was like, it actually it's funny how much the golden age of Hollywood ended up benefiting the MCU down the line because yeah. for years, Stanley was like, make an Ant-Man movie. And it's mm-hmm. like, and you wonder why in the hell would he say, make an ant-man movie out of all of his characters <laughs> and then i'm like oh yeah the incredible shrinking man he figured that's the only character that could be done in film he didn't yeah. think about cgi at the time yeah but ant-man conceptualized in a way that would actually be have been pretty thrilling how, in a lot of ways. How, how in the world are you gonna do a spider-man but say <laughs> an ant-man it makes perfect i saw what richard matheson did and jack arnold did i can do that mm-hmm. um now here comes the so that it's great to hear that you have this appreciation for all the facets of what make golden age Hollywood interesting. And to hear that stagecoach was one of your first exposure points had to be delights me to no end, because that means I'm not the only child in the world that knew what Andy divine was at a young age. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, a book. God, so many of those. It's interesting hearing those voices pop up too in animation so much. As Ro- like Robin, a Hood. Of, Robin Hood. Robin yeah. Hood. That's that's where that, we we could say animation at some points, but we're really talking about Robin Hood. Yeah, <laughs> Phil even Harris. Some of the, and also some of the voice archetypes too that were just developed as like kind of stock character types as mm-hmm. that just again keep coming back. Oh yeah. Sometimes not necessarily with the correct attribution, but <laughs> yeah, I, I always feel like Phil Harris is the only one that actually got proper cast like it's almost as like the character fit the action the other one being george sanders as shere khan the tiger in jungle book <laughs> because it's just like he looks like a tiger that would want to eat the man the yeah. man cub <laughs> <laughs> there is a bit a bit of typecasting in that and at the same point you watch foreign correspondent with with george sanders and he's like the goofy best friend character you wish you had in every movie like yes i want this goofy british best friend character in every movie please Foliate for life. <laughs> um, I think it's it's nice understanding that not to be discouraged by it, but just within the range of sort of knowing that there's not always new things under the sun and knowing your history is the core of inflecting in ways that are truly new and creative of just like, yeah, a lot of your a lot of your story DNA was created within within an era that you don't always have like the toolkit to take in and, and analyze in the way you should. If don't, you're don't tell trying pe- to make things. Don't don't tell people that who have a hateful agenda. You don't, you don't want to tell them that somebody from from another country had an influence in the way they ingest Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't want to tell them that they'll get angry and they'll spit at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thankfully, we're not here to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> we're here to talk about Noah's Ark now. Um, rather than ask the question, "What's your familiarity with the Bible?" I'm <laughs> Huh. <laughs> it burns when I touch it. <laughs> Refresh my memory. Uh, is it a good book? It's considered the good book. Ah, I see. I, I see. I've been hit with one. Does it have magic in it? <laughs> God, if you if you were just to lay out the elements of that damn book in a way that's just like. <laughs> 
that was just like, all right, yeah, there's there's magic tricks. There's a lot of death. Mm-hmm. I guess <laughs> fire rains down from the sky. I think there's a dragon. Somebody like, comes back to life. It is such a such a bad sell for what you're actually getting. Yeah, and full disclosure for the audience, I understand that everybody. Anybody listening may have a, a particular point of view on faith, and we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna you know go and yeah. bash oh, yeah. bash bash your beliefs at any at any point in the proceedings. We're we're going to be as respectful as we can. We're really just talking about this film <laughs> and what it does with a biblical story. And I feel like this is a weird scenario because so I have heard of this movie for years. Mm-hmm. And when you and I were talking about getting you on the show, you, you your first question was, is there a way to talk about the Twilight Zone? <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, not not the correct, not the correct age, range of time. <laughs> no, no. But but it was a question that stuck in my mind of like, well, there's got to be a way to talk about that by tying it back to an earlier incident in Hollywood's history because set safety has become a very important factor in recent years. Um, not the least of which through several occurrences in the stunt world and in the prop world that have, uh, that have created a lot of, a a lot of needed discussion surrounding safety and frankly, proper working conditions within the system that in tandem with the financial aspect or leading to, unions not messing around and really wanting to fight for the rights of their workers. Yeah. And I think the creative guilds and filmmaking have inured elements of the process in ways that are markedly like worth a level of, of acknowledgement and renown, mm-hmm. but yeah, so much, so much left to do. And also not a lot of historical context or understanding on, yeah, sometimes what are very horrible things that people are subjected to in the context of trying to create art. Right. And this is, so what's funny is, is that we were, when we were planning and I, and I looked through the list and I was like, well, Michael Cortese's Noah's Ark has always had this, this thing floating around its flood sequence. Mm -hmm. So why don't we talk about that film? When I started doing research on the film, uh, immediately an article popped up uh, tying it into the whole history of of set responsibility and set safety as it pertained to the Helena Hutchins mm-hmm. situation um, with uh, with the sh- with the shoot for the film Rust. Yes. Um, and they started started citing this film immediately. And so I'm like, OK, well, we're going to talk about this film. Now, when I popped this film in for the first time, I had only seen the flood sequences and sections of the biblical part. Learning that it was a World War One drama with the Bible stuffed in was quite uh, an eye opener at 11 o'clock at night when I sat down to watch it at last. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think I, I had heard enough to know it was an element, but in terms of how it's balanced, in terms of how the presentation is, it it, it was a bit of a fun surprise. <laughs> yeah, it was it was almost like Michael Curtiz went like, "Happy birthday! Enjoy your pleasant surprise." <laughs> mm-hmm. It is a bit of a it's a bit of a Reese's peanut butter cup of of biblical violence. You got World War Two in my Bible. Yeah. <laughs> you got or you got World War One in my Bible. You got Bible in my World War One. <laughs> and I was I was curious about from the silent era into the beginning of of like you know talking pictures. Uh, 
how many or what the sort of groundwork laid between the conclusion of World War One to when this movie was produced, likely, I'm guessing, around 1928 or so. Yes, 1928 and, was when the production finally began. Um, and it, but is, what are you saying you're wondering, like, what the full output was in just, response? Its presence in, in regards to other films of its type. In terms of how World War One was was portrayed, or what it, the right. sort of country's idea of it as a a focal point of media was at the time, because I just I didn't have a lot of experience with media from that era that right. tried to address, and also I, I think doesn't really maybe address the different perspective that the U.S. had on that entire conflict. The, the, I think the big thing that you can take away from the films that occur post World War One is that they are an immediate response to having done their duty but recognizing that they didn't want to be a part of it. World War I and our involvement in it was seen as a tragedy that mm-hmm. the that we were actively looking to avoid going forward, which is why our nation became a lot more isolationist up until the moment when even the staunchest isolationist couldn't ignore the fact that we were under attack. Yeah. That's, and that's the, and, and unfortunately that, that, that mentality seeped into a lot of hateful, uh, racist and anti-Semitic culture in the process. Um, but the unsurprising, but yeah, okay. <laughs> it's the, uh, the America first idea is rooted in hate but it's um but it's it's outward ideal it, at this moment was keep us out of foreign affairs mm-hmm. um so like you know pu- acknowledging the baggage that it has attached to it that it, it it the the main concept was i don't want my child to die overseas in a conflict that has nothing to do with them yeah this felt like some of those tiptoeing steps to the conceptual understanding that there's no inherent honor in running at a machine gun <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> It was like it's it's funny because we talk about anti-war films and their prevalence in the new wave era, like mm-hmm. you know, like the output of, of Oliver Stone yeah. primarily. Yeah, like it's all a byproduct of Vietnam rather yeah. than anything else. Exactly. It's not. This started as early as World War One. One of the first productions Warner Brothers engaged in to create themselves as a studio was My Four Years in Germany, which was a film about the German ambassadors. A trip to time in Germany and seeing what was going on there and there and the atrocities of the Kaiser. So that film led them to prominence. You also have Universal putting out later on after this film, All's Quiet on the Western Front, which is the ultimate statement on the matter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, but this film, it does what others of its era are trying to do, whether it's Jacques Hughes. Um, uh, or or other pieces put together by the major studios is a reflection of the costliness of war. And what's funny is is that you can the, the imagery and the ideas go one of two ways. It either goes to somber reflection or, and this is not a joke, it goes to monster movies yeah. because monster movies use that imagery. Um, the reflect the, the the very characters that Lon Chaney portrayed, carry with them the weight of world war one because of the makeup yeah because no matter if it was intended or not our mind is connected to seeing the disfigured soldiers returning home from those gas attacks and from general amputation like there is a there is a conception of the monsters that are created out of war that fascinates an artist 
to mold and shape. And obviously they're not monsters. They're men returning home who went through a battle. But that's what their image becomes, strangely. There is also an interesting point of timing with this film around the end of the 20s and how the transition to the 30s, the the beginning of the Depression, the the rise of like the bonus army and other components of behind other service members who like have yeah. different concepts and thoughts behind their experience in World War One. You have like the sometimes higher brass in the military, like Smedley Butler and stuff kind of coming back and letting, telling Congress that war is a grift and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and kind of laying bare the dangers of what it means to commit to like an industrial concept of, of military might. And it's, it's a lot of pieces, but it, this, this film is so, it very lightly seasons components. Actually, I won't say very lightly. There is a weight to war and conflict that is evident inside it. But I think in a range that they, they hadn't figured, I guess, the former factor that was relevant to present things within a tragic context. It had to be bookended with a certain kind of like allegory or yeah, yeah. The, the thing, the thing about this film that I kind of realized because like I've learned to like the Joker movie over time, but my first reaction to that film was this is a broad generalization of of mental disability, yeah, <laughs> uh, that I don't think is healthy. Um, as I've as I've looked at it further, I realized that that film, much kind of like this film, is that it broadly encapsulates a generalized feeling about war. It's it lacks nuance because it's trying to cover so much in its scope. Indeed, I think it's interesting to see, like, within the structure of this film, especially for the the very tragic things that are a part of it. Like, it kind of starts with a broadly presented allegory related to workers' rights in like a biblical context of yeah. building the, I think the tower of Babel or yeah, it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's ironic that the building of the tower of Babel is contained in this movie that would then proceed to be uh, a factor in so much uh, destruction and even injury. Yeah. But it was it like in Warner brothers ethos in being willing to portray these things is interesting in some context too, because yeah, it contains, a certain level of criticism around concepts of the time of how people were beginning to understand capitalism, the, the villain. Yeah. The, the and it, you see the dawn coding. There's a, there's a dawn of the gangster era kind of seeped into this film as yeah. it is with a lot of their earlier films. And it, this comes at a point where they're now learning how to use the technology that they innovate with the jazz singer. And you're starting to see, you see in this film actually what they prefer to show in sound rather than give a voice. Yeah. We'll talk about that with one actor in particular, but we should give some production information up front. And for full disclosure, for people who already know what this film is and what we're going to be talking about, um, that portion of the production information will come during the plot breakdown because rather than just describe this flood, we will be going through the issue at hand. But this project was conceived by Curtiz as early as his arrival to America, something that he was almost promised by Harry Warner to absolutely do. What Curtiz didn't factor in was that Jack Warner and Harry Warner hated each other. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't factor in Cain v. Abel, Dawn of Justice. <laughs> and so the... Uh, uh, the, the the bottom line is that Curtiz kind of gets left in this limbo of sorts. He He's brought over to America to make films. He, he establishes himself as really the first director of Hungarian film. 
and Harry Warner sees his work and says, I like you, come on over here and make stuff for us. And while he's waiting to do this Noah's Ark outline that he stretches out, because he he sees, as everybody else sees, the importance of this kind of biblical epic. DeMille had already set this standard way before. Yeah. So he wants to get on that bandwagon too. But there's a couple of problems with it. Number one, obviously the brother uh, battles. Number two is there's a strap cash uh, cash strap nature to uh, Warner Brothers around 1926. And it leads them to this uh, point in their existence where one of the brothers, Sam, who's already been fiddling with the sound technology, says, guys, let's let's go all in. And the agreements are made. And around 1926, as Curtiz has been brought over to America and is kind of being put into a, an assignment mode uh, around August 6, 1926, Vitaphone is acquired. And thus mm-hmm. the jazz singer is put into a, into the production and put on the gambling block of like, will it work? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <clears throat> at the same time, uh, there was a, the first film, one of the first films that Curtiz was brought on board for was a movie called A Million Bid. And Hal Moore, the cinematographer of today's film, or at least one of them, kind of gives a little bit of insight into Curtiz and his eventual responsibility for the issues at hand. This is a what he had to say about working with Curtiz on A Million Bid. We had a darling little baby in A Million Bid, and the baby was supposed to cry. So Mike would go to go up to say something to the woman who was holding the baby, and he'd fuss around, adjusting the diaper or something. The baby would start to cry, and he'd turn on the camera. I took about four or five takes before I caught on to what the son of a bitch was doing. He was pinching the baby to make it cry. Curtiz's methods have always been discussed as outright shitty. <laughs> I didn't think it extended all the way to babies. Sure. <laughs> I feel like there's um, there's really not a lot of accounting within the ethical history of like film. <laughs> no. Just in terms of like, all right, here's where you stop. Like, yeah. Like here's here's you know where there's a rule in relation to how you're allowed to interact with a child. Yeah. On, on a film set. Well, child actors' rights were were no more respected than animal actors' rights yeah. were at this point. So it's mm-hmm. it's not this is not an excuse, but it's just this is the reality of where they were. Yeah. In their development of like, because it's similar to how child labor laws are like not taken seriously up until a certain point. And stuff like this is very much the the reasoning behind if you're go to engage in an art form, but have no sort of like mind or patience to understand. Yeah. The sort of history behind its ethics and the development of how it means to actually do it without being a (laughs) a piece of (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, And I think that this is, it's funny because like, so so all the sources, I try to give the sources out, right? I looked on variety. I looked through newspapers um, and I tried to backtrack some stuff from IMDB and most of it, I was able to find something, but it had, but it wasn't coming from articles of the era. It was coming from Michael Curtiz, a life in film by Alan K. Rode and Rode's book on Curtiz is extensive. And I think he finds like most authors do with their subject, a middle ground in which to view uh, their subject where they, they realize that thing that um, I have been lovingly reminded of in a good way which is that the like you can't pigeonhole one person into one mode of operating as a human being there's there's no way to just 
say, okay, Curtis is a monster. He looks at it at a bunch of angles, but even he can't really fully grasp the situations that are to come with Noah's Ark. And the 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 formation of Noah's Ark finally coming into play comes with storyman Daryl F. Zanuck at Warner Brothers finally getting a chance to produce. Mm-hmm. This is his first major production. The origin the 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 what would become the original kernel of 20th Century Fox, um, a studio that used to exist. And at this point, <laughs> Warner Brothers it was a thing at one point. <laughs> it was a thing at one point. And if uh, if the trend keeps up, Warner Brothers might eventually be a studio that used to exist. <laughs> 20th Century Fox ever heard of it? <laughs> I don't know. Did they ever We're make so old? Did they, ever, so... did they ever make a movie about apes on a planet? Son, I have so much to show you. <laughs> Oh my Lord. Look at Maurice Evans. Look at him. <laughs> I think you would have reminded me actually that yeah, the 20th Century Studios was like a again, it's an infinite ret- one of those other infinite return things where in the 20s, yeah, it was yeah. 20th Century Studios and here we are. Yep, we're exactly. Back. We're we're back to where we began. So, but Warner Brothers will still be called Warner Brothers, but they never had Discovery attached to their mm-hmm. name. <laughs> um now uh the but the thing that I found funny is is that the more we dig into uh, the story formation, we realized that Daryl F. Zanuck, being a story man at Warner Brothers, had a lot of input. They did not like Curtiz's initial pitch, um, and but they were still pretty sure what they were able to bring this in for. Um, one of the there was a front the front cover of uh, of the original undated treatment sent to Mister Jack L. Warner, comments in pencil appearing to be in Warner's handwriting. Send to Daryl. Biblical part okay. One third modern. <laughs> Two-third biblical costs seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more. Build on Vital Lot. Lease ground somewhere for this picture. And that projection is healthy. Because mm-hmm. he does use the word or more. <laughs> <laughs> more it, or ended less. Up, it ended up being a million dollar production, which God. was a lot of money. It's interesting thinking of how how the mighty have fallen in the sense of like like from the golden age of Hollywood to being like a football that's getting punted around by the same network that has like Honey Boo Boo on it, or I don't know, I don't know what Discovery has right now. Uh, they have uh, some kind of documentary about how much fat I'm eating mm-hmm. on a daily basis. That's yeah. what they have. I don't know. Half of these channels that exist at this point seem to have lost the content. That I'd be, I would be surprised if the Animal Planet still has animal content on it. Everybody's kind of lost the thread, or at least so. <laughs> yeah. Never- television remember when mtv had music (laughs) that was a time (laughs) it was a magical time now names names are meaningless these days yeah but eventually this film does get through come through the treatment of um of uh daryl Zanuck and anthony coldaway the stat one of the staff writers at warner brothers during march of 1927 daryl Zanuck ultimately gets the story credit for this uh and we start digging into production our our star George O'Brien, uh, one of our two stars, um, was touring with in Europe with F.W. Murnau um, uh, and was summoned home by Fox to be lent out to Warner Brothers for $1,500 a week. Um, Nora, Noah Beery signed $3,000 per week. Uh, Paul McAllister and Gwyn Big Boy Williams are brought in additionally. And you have Dolores Costello. And there's a lot of articles to the era that are very concerned with Dolores' transition into sound. And that's something to talk about is that we are 
they are aware that this production is going to extend into the sound <laughs> realm now because of what what they created in the jazz singer. It was an interesting time, just in terms of everybody placing bets on whether or not your voice sucked too much to make it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because the one instance where everybody points to uh, our our history of Hollywood as like, oh, well, this actor couldn't make the transition to sound. Yeah. This person couldn't uh, find a career after the uh, after the emergence of sound film. John Gilbert is our big point of reference for this. Mm-hmm. And he's accused of having the squeaky voice in a Jack Benny movie. Um, and uh, I've watched that film multiple times for research. He has a voice. It's just a voice. Yeah. But it's because of the way these films are being projected and displayed. So it's almost as if projecting your film properly is an important thing. <laughs> are you hearing me, AMC? Um, so, but so his yeah, his, and so his voice sounded weird depending on the print or what the disc sounded like or whatever speed was being run. And meanwhile, though, I we hear the voices of our actors. They have voices. They translate, I guess, just fine. Like. We're it's, not dealing with an awkward situation like a Mary Philbin. <laughs> it's a it's an era that hadn't conceptually acknowledged the reality of kind of like the the sort of midday player, the sort of character actor slash occasional leading person. Like yeah, yeah, you can you can be a bit of a utility player. You don't have to exist in one context. Yeah, it's and it's I find it funny that like people who would never have succeeded in silent films find their success in talking films because their voice is one other aspect of their personality that shines through. Yeah. Consequently, if you put Lon Chaney in a talkie film like the only one he did, The Unholy Three, he has a fine voice and he can throw his voices into others. He's a man of, he could have been a man of a thousand voices. Yeah. But his voice doesn't distinguish him the same way a Humphrey Bogart does necessarily. Mm -hmm. But his face certainly does. And it is telling that not too long after John Lon Chaney died. Silent Cinema itself was basically done. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's almost just like it was all dependent on his survival. And lung, lung cancer saw that the death of <laughs> saw the death of silent movies. Lung cancer really had an axe to grind. <laughs> silent era. I fucking hate silent films. <laughs> what can I do? Mm-hmm. Hello, Lon. <laughs> um. Now this is where we start kind of dealing with the the nuts and bolts of production here. The production begins around March of 1928. Uh, it takes about a year to really kick this into gear. Uh, and um, it, it seems like the range kind of has them wrapping up around August or September. There is exterior locations at Big Basin Redwoods State Park, which is where we get a lot of the stuff with uh, Ham, Shem, and uh, Jepeth um, mm-hmm. in um, uh, the Noah sequences. Um, and the Iverson Ranch in Chatsworth, which I can only assume uh, has a lot to do with some of the exteriors for the biblical, but also maybe the war scenes. Um, and uh, there are uh, there is a massive scale of production that even extends into outside of the Warner Brothers lot. Um, uh, so this is an account from somebody for the processional to the Temple of Jagath. Um, the police of officers raises his hands and a hundred cars stop waiting for the sign that permits them to progress again. The cars are heading to Talmadge Street. The roads are clogged around six gates of Warners with heavy duty trucks, Buicks, Chryslers waiting to get in. Calvaries of extras, technicians, carpenters, 
Negroes, Japanese, and Chinese are marching in. <laughs> I of all the th- why is <laughs> anyway inside the gates, tall buildings are towering towards the skies. Syrian temples, Babylonian streets are next to reconstructed forests, and on top of a hill, there it is, the Ark. So, despite the this uh, one observer's casual racism, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he is describing he or she is describing perfectly the scale at which Silent Hollywood was able to perform under because they had the ability to not not only go off location, but it allowed them to also kind of work with weather areas and just kind of go bold or go home. Yeah. So you don't have any other component other than the visual. You have to make it as big as possible. Mm-hmm. Now. That, but by the time you get to sound, until you can figure out how to go on location, you're pretty much studio bound. So you better hope your stage and your set, whether inside or out of the studio lot, has enough force to deal with the sound, but also to have the scale that you're looking for for an epic. Like let's use Gone with the Wind, for example. The Burning of Atlanta is a good example of that. Yeah. Where you have like, yes, it's a major massive sequence but it feels contained when you watch a dw griffith movie or a demille movie from Mm -hmm. the era of just going like yeah but it doesn't have this much going on (laughs) inside the frame critical support to general sherman for burning atlanta yes (laughs) yes exactly yes um yeah it's within this era it's interesting that how much of a mutant this production is mm -hmm. just in terms of okay we're going to commit to and i believe it was after the fact that the elements were incorporated to some degree or like in terms of production it seems like Like the sound elements i i I feel like i read that the production actually maybe shot those elements or they were directed by another person that's that's the that's a that's something i couldn't confirm because like the problem is is that it comes off of wikipedia oh and if and if i can't source it i can't confirm it so i will not confirm it, but I will tell you that Wikipedia says Roy <laughs> Del Luth directed the sound sequences, not Curtiz. Oh. But what's strange is that Curtiz had already been brought into the sound realm because of a movie called Tenderloin, which was his real first experiment into this roughly 15% of the film talking. And Curtiz publicly praised the sound system, but privately referred to mixers as sound bums <laughs> which there's a term for a for for a hungry public sound bums i i could scarcely imagine the response of just honing your technique in relation to location shooting and being able to access and work within such a free palette and then suddenly have to well make it work make these aspects work in a room you have no other choice it's yeah. just it is what it is can, can i read from you what alan k road said about Curtiz's impression of the sound uh, situation. (laughs) The most frustrating aspect was ceding the personal authority of his set to what he perceived as lesser entities beyond his control. Sound mixers, sound bums, (laughs) as Curtiz derisively called them, often spoke in incomprehensible technobabble accompanied by the arrogance that came with their sudden power. Also, the need to cluster actors around microphones concealed in props drove him crazy. The cameras had to be contained in small sound proof booths to squelch the noise of running gears which nearly asphyxiated the cameraman <laughs> i feel like the relationship with uh above the line to, to a sound person is not changed in 100 years apparently yeah no. <laughs> do you think that if we if i make another film should i refer refer to the sound uh mixer on set sound as a bum. sound bum <laughs> you know and there's you know for anybody who's making a movie there's nobody 
there's nobody on set who's generally more worth their money than your sound recordist. That's <laughs> like it is. It is very. It is such a such a spice that if it's wrong, yeah, really, really messes the whole batch. Yep. But the fact that that means that on some level, that sound person has your set not under their control, but they can stop it. Yeah. And bring it to all often with good reason. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's, I, I just realized that there's been this kerfuffle in recent years about, uh, recategorizing the best sound mix, sound editing and sound, uh, sound editing and sound mixing Oscars. And they combined it into the best sound one. Yeah. I, I'm going to make an argument that the Oscars have already fucked themselves over enough. It can't hurt them to change the name again to best sound bum. <laughs> <laughs> and just get, give Ben Burt the first sound bum award. Give you the golden bindle for <laughs> the sound bum. It's an it's an Oscar with a bindle and a, and a hat with a hole in it. Listen, we know this is problematic. We'll apologize later. We're the, we're the Academy. <laughs> right now, we want to give you a statue that looks like a hobo out of a Looney Tune cartoon. It's the it's one of those porcelain like the saddest the saddest little hobo. <laughs> Not not my term, not a preferred one. <laughs> oh my gosh. The boom mic is the bindle. <laughs> <laughs> like every sound person, do you got your sound bindle? <laughs> Does it cut all your mics? If I ever get if I ever, ever get asked to work a student film again as a sound person, just like for basic needs we need somebody to hold the boom mic, mm-hmm. I'm gonna walk in with it like if like it's a bindle. <laughs> So all the microphones are yeah, strapped yeah, to he, a bag at the end of the booth. Here's my microphones, here's my XLR cables, and here's my lunch. <laughs> it, it doesn't merit resentment, but at the same time, I especially in that age, because how how restrictive <laughs> and how controlled those elements had to be for them to be effective. It it yeah, that frustration well, makes it, some li- sense. Literally, that whole quote is describing the movie "Singing in the Rain" to some degree. Yeah, like, and then, and there is a sing- sound of "Singing in the Rain" connection that will happen as the reception of this film happens. But the uh, what also had to be contended with on this production was um, the the project being greenlit with the auspices of Daryl F. Zanuck's uh, production career beginning. Uh, uh, the the whole notion that I got out of it, which was interesting, is that Road rightfully indicates that Zanuck was kind of taking some credit, uh, overambitious credit, which Curtiz seemed to not really mind because he was kind of aware of how Zanuck, what Zanuck's role was up to a certain point. But Road quotes in the book that, The young producer boasted to the Los Angeles Times, we had just a name to begin with, just a name, Noah's Ark. (laughs) And then he noted Curtiz's involvement with a brief aside. Yes, of course there was a director. Michael Curtiz directed all the dramatic work. I love how easy your pitching was back then. <laughs> you walk in a room. Just... Picture this. <laughs> Noah's Ark. Yeah, that book everybody knows read. <laughs> Noah's Ark. It, it reminds me of another audacious and at, at times maligned director, James Cameron, just walking into walking into Fox and going like, Romeo and Juliet on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and then walking away. <laughs> Just yeah, I, I assume you'll back up the dump truck full of money. <laughs> Do you want another Terminator movie? Because I'm, <laughs> or don't you want a big boat movie? 
<laughs> I would hope anybody anybody in creation is just like you're gonna have all the money you want. You made Terminator too. Figure it out. <laughs> you What's that? You submarine? want four Avatar movies? Yeah. Sure, you made Terminator too. <laughs> we'll check. Well, everybody in America will see him. What's, so. what's that? You want to withhold True Lies in 4K? Sure, because you Ooh. made Terminator too. <laughs> You maniac. <laughs> Why have we given you money? Because Terminator 2. <laughs> Just one true believer that thinks he'll get another Terminator 2. They keep pumping money to it's James Cameron. It's a scam that James Cameron is running. Come on. Maybe he, this time. He, fi- he finally was almost, he was almost figured out, and that's why he had to produce Terminator Dark Fate. He's <laughs> like, I'll produce it, but I'll, 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 get the, I'll get Tim Miller to direct it. He'll take the blame. <laughs> So like it, yeah. <laughs> just thinking of like people who I want to trade their toys. Just like okay, we're gonna give Avatar two to John Carpenter. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna try to mix some flavors, see if we can get right. things to where they need to be. Kurt, in this scene, uh, you're playing a blue cat. <laughs> I want you to roam around that forest and wiggle your tail. Mm-hmm. Go, Kurt, do it. <laughs> no, no, the kid's gonna get shot in the face. <laughs> John Carpenter. <laughs> Love that maniac. Yeah. Now, um, now here's another part of Curtiz's uh, br- uh, production uh, savvy is that he was very meticulous, not unlike a Hitchcock or uh, even any grand director, of uh, meticulously breaking down blue in a blueprint sense uh, where he wanted his his performers. Mm. Uh, the there was a blueprint layout actually for the placement of each extra down to the letter, and for the sacrifice of Miriam sequence, they had eleven cameras rolling simultaneously. And um, there, there it, it seems like this is the image that people don't always get of silent films, which is how many things you could do without sound by rolling all of those cameras in synchronous fashion to the best of the ability of the cameraman and capture so much coverage. That was really the loss of the silent air was the largesse yeah. of like a certain kind of and not to say it it completely evaporated but yeah it's it's prevalence in the context of actual character shots became far more difficult it's so weird because the more technology evolves the harder it is to get coverage it seems like i I remember watching the irishman uh special features on the criterion which most of you should do Mm -hmm. um in fact just don't give netflix your money just buy that (laughs) blu-ray um but uh the uh, uh they talked about like how they didn't want the technology to inhibit Scorsese's ability to do what he does best and coverage getting multiple cameras in the room is part of that process. But that camera head that they had to set up for the de-aging proved to be a challenge for that, obviously. So you can imagine, and 3D even gave him his own issues, I believe, with Hugo. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn how to navigate these things. But at this time, the bulk of this film is going to be silent. He can engorge in whatever mad dream he wants and this was a dream that he held for so long that he was going to go big or go home he told a visiting budapest newspaper noah's ark is a long-held dream of mine i carried it myself from europe because only the american technology and american money could make it come true the american newspapers doubted that one could make a film about noah this hazy biblical figure that would be entertaining and exciting well i solved this impossible problem i divided the movie in two parts the first one takes place in biblical times and the second takes place in the present so this is where we can start jumping into the plot of this film because at this point all the production stories to come deal with imagery we see in this film and you know breaking it down in the same way we do a sound film is difficult because 
there's dialogue attached to it that we can easily you know decipher and dissect based off of performance yeah there's much more of an impressionist stripe when it comes to characterization or how people are like what it means i think to have an idea for a person comes down to often facial movements or small actions or things that are it yeah it you know it's it's the most basic lesson but the show don't tell principle of how to kind of use your face and other components of your body right but we can do the story strokes in detail while broad yeah because we open up and the and the flood has already happened so we're at the end and then quentin tarantino says now let's go back a chapter Mm -hmm. Uh, we we know moses wins yeah we know Uh, moses wait not moses (laughs) moses Okay, no, Moses. Is- <laughs> no, we're back on speed. Excuse oh, wait, me. Wait, <laughs> Jesus is Ark. <laughs> the Ark of the Ark of the Jesus. I am not biblically trained. <laughs> no, none of us are. We read the book and then we said that's fine, but War of the Worlds is more interesting. <laughs> Hello, HG. <laughs> um, and we open up on these inner titles. The Ark has already been. Uh, the, the Ark has already uh, made its journey. There's a big rainbow. Everybody's going like, "Praise the Lord!" And um, the the first like text we get out of it is i do now set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a token for a covenant between me and the earth genesis chapter 9 um uh, copyright 2020 <laughs> and, um and the uh there's a it, it's actually a beautiful image of that's like this matte arc uh, uh with with the foreground being your like rock set and whatnot yeah i think it's some of the same as i think it was some of the same um environments they shot stagecoach in yeah (laughs) what's that matte painting of an arc doing there get the the fuck out of here (laughs) marion yeah that's your real name get in that frame right there (laughs) next to that rock you know where the arc used to be now i want you to swing that gun (laughs) (laughs) and make an entrance that'll make every dad in america happy i think it's fun to whatever you think of john wayne just imagine john ford off to the side called him a piece of shit (laughs) (laughs) Fucking asshole! You didn't fight in World War Two. Jimmy fought. <laughs> Why Bob, did you fight, John? Bob Montgomery fought. What the fuck are you? <laughs> to be fair, we've talked about it on this show. I don't like either of those men, but it's 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 easy to pick a side at times. <laughs> I will I will take any opportunity to shit on. Oh John yeah, Wayne. John John Wayne has never given me a reason to love him except for maybe Rio Bravo and. <laughs> But even then, I'm just like, yeah, but you're still a piece of shit. I appreciate performances. A lot of a lot of young men got grifted in the military. By yeah, exactly. By that asshole. Now, Dean Martin. <laughs> Dean Martin did nothing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a blanket statement I think anybody can make. Dean Martin did nothing wrong. Dean Martin did his best. <laughs> that should be his biography. <laughs> Dean, Martin, Dean Martin. It's just one page. He did good. It was fine. <laughs> credits um now we do but then we start moving immediately into other stories of the bible we start getting the building of the tower of babel the slaves in egypt and- i could scarcely imagine the whiplash of of people responding to this plot like i went to see noah's ark and then, like wait <laughs> can you no, descri- we- can you describe noah's ark yeah yeah first it started with the ark but then we started going back to the tower of babel <laughs> and then all of a sudden we ended up in wall street <laughs> <laughs> and then and then sad older men are shooting other mean old men and yeah <laughs> and there's a train crash and <laughs> yeah the and, and this is something that's prevalent throughout the entire piece too this sort of bookended conceptual understanding that these that there is some implied equivalence between these stories which i think is maybe 
within its time earlier to hold with versus now they they feel like pretty separate flavors yeah in a modern context but. I, f- I feel like it's there's such an emphasis on trying to compare the evils of the modern world and capitalism in particular mm-hmm. to the, to the lessons that the bible teaches which seems so counterintuitive to the way somebody that reads the bible today operates yeah the the beginning of, of this movie starts with two very and again it's they're darkly like comedically sad in the context of the tragedies that befell but of like of really throwing weight behind concepts and and these were popular social theory at the time of of the social and and economic justice movements and and how it was being impacted by you know terrible economic circumstances of the last 30 years and the, just the unfairness of people in biblical times being killed by falling babel rocks yeah babel rocks or 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 under the edicts of people who worship false idols like the golden calf is done in here and i love how the music builds up into in this hedonistic like fashion of just the worshiping of this golden idol and i'm just like yeah this is where the party is Mm -hmm. um and then but you get to the when you get to the stock market footage these would be wonderful commentaries if they weren't such broad strokes because the literal scene of the wall street banker who fucked over the t- fucked over the guy who gave him all his money it's like i'm sorry there's nothing i can do bang dead yeah. <laughs> like, like, which again critical support to the guy shooting <laughs> shooting 20s bankers it's, it's, it's like it's like guide to capitalism for dummies mm-hmm. <laughs> d- turned into a motion picture the two second film it goes to a micro film festival <laughs> And then then we get the uh, the immediate transition into the outbreak of war on this train. And um, we we're we're introduced to this old preacher character, this old minister um, who tries to get a seat on a train. And the young man basically tells him, fuck your Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Critical support to memes (laughs) on the train. (laughs) At least for a moment, I was like, yeah, he's not the worst person. <laughs> no, he's not. He's just, I don't go in for your Bible, for your Bible <laughs> stuff. And then our two heroes, uh, Al and Travis, uh, put a stop to this pretty quickly. And as they leave, Travis walks off kind of like the more solemn hero. And Al goes like, I go where he goes. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Al. Yeah, Al, we'll talk about Al. And we get also the introduction of uh, of Marie. She's a German actress working in a German theater troupe. This whole train, too, I think, is a lot of a lot of their attempt at presenting thematic pieces to what they're going to book in with their biblical segments by creating broad archetypes inside of the people and yes. and their concepts behind what they find. So this film, the sort of, and, and there's, there's precedent for this in history that I think is, is good to understand when you lose like the ecclesiastical, the religious underpinning of your society, it's not that things are inherently bad. It's just, it's a vacuum. Yeah. Like there's some, there's going to be other forces that fill people's, faith and and concept of themselves and three characters lay it out one being the uh yeah like we have the german or not german russian the oh yeah nikoroff yeah nikoloff yeah your russian military leader who finds god in concepts (laughs) i wrote this down and not to use the reductive language but uh the science pussy army period of power or period of power. <laughs> you, you, you have three characters essentially arguing about how, what is God? Is it, is it military might? Is it women? Is it, um, yeah. Oh. Is it science? And 
just again showing and and being a direct opposition to this minister who is representing at least the what is it perceived as the order of god and the the sort of natural it, it's sort of weird presence it's sort of society. weird like he he advocates it almost seems like he advocates for faith rather than the dogma of religion itself necessarily yeah he's not like it's like do- it's like the movie dogma with kevin smith it's like it's not it doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you have faith and but like the the way you were talking about those people who like budge up against them like a, a bug budge up against him with their beliefs in religion there is like this the one of the lines that i uh, that i found in this movie to be uh the, the to be funny as the frenchman goes there is no god gentlemen there is only a goddess her name is woman and she's a devil <laughs> just so like they they're using the title cards as a way to mock non-belief which is interesting to me like yeah and i think the the presupposition of like a religious foundation being a natural order of of specifically and again not to say it's not everywhere but just like it being a thread within u.s society and our concept of ourselves that i think moving into this era the writing's a bit more on the wall about mm-hmm. like no yeah this century is not going to be focused around this topic <laughs> like, yeah it is exactly. not the the order of um and and it's cited i think as being again sort of the core thread by which war is sort of waged seemingly is the loss of god to these other because you can you can support warfare in support of you know your your belief in the pervasive good of scientific advancement, even if it's just toward weapons of war, right. toward the might of a military, if it provides you a sense of community and structure. And then, yeah, if you're, if your whole like outlook is based around lust, it's, I, it plays out. I think what they feel like the conflict of the coming century is. It's Yeah. And again, we're like, these are ideas that I love exploring but not in broad strokes to just get to the point of trusting god and everything will be okay and it's not like and it's not like what the message he's saying is explicitly bad it's just that unfortunately i think that this is where it doesn't translate well to a modern audience is that like it's such a brief broad stroke yeah that you're 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 hinged on you either believe or you don't believe so you're either going to embrace this as a powerful biblical saga or you're going to embrace it as a as a goof. Yeah, the film also doesn't really it doesn't say it, it doesn't question its own viewpoint, but it never presents any sort of challenge conceptually no. to the the which, correctness of of the religious presentation or, which which is which is basically how the entirety of Pureflix works as a company. Yeah. So it's kind of weird <laughs> maybe they have this film on a loop or something. But the um of all of these uh co- these conflicts happening in the train which include you know the russian agent uh nikolov getting uh, a little bit too handsy or familiar with marie and then the train all of a sudden crashes in beautiful <laughs> miniature work beautiful miniature work i love a good miniature in this era and this film has some wonderful beautiful moments of that um the um I wanted to point out that the 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 uh, direction of the of these sequences um, was done under the supervision of Fred Jackman, who constructed the wreck of the Orient Express and then the later wider shots of the Deluge. And 
the only other train crash that compares to me for in terms of its epicness in Golden Age Hollywood is the one in The Invisible Man at this point. Yeah. Um, and it's it's kind of lovely to kind of watch them intercut between the special effects shots and the amount of uh, practical things being thrown at the camera. Yeah. You can feel the danger. And that's like, that's fun so long as you kind of realize nobody gets hurt until you realize people do get hurt. Then it becomes interesting trying to watch it and suss out how you feel about it. It's an interesting sequence because, yeah, it's it's beautifully presented, but it's also, it's it's one of those things, I think, in the arc of how film develops. It's a scene that has kind of a dissonant tone in terms of its its music selection and yeah. some some really chipper entries yeah. in, in terms of what is like, oh, this is seemingly a mass death event. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's like, but but don't worry. Like all is going to be, it's, it's so weird. It also is trying to serve as a microcosm for how the melting pot works before it's divided up by war. Yeah. And like you you see people like helping each other out and then going like, yeah, thanks, Russian man. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a solid, a solid class commentary that a freed, a prisoner who is uh, handcuffed to a law enforcement officer. Law enforcement officer dies in the crash. This prisoner still decides to, it, obviously free and able to get away now, decides to help them save Marie. Yeah. Who's yeah, trapped under some timbers as a result of the crash. Yeah. Where Al and uh, Alan Travis, yeah, managed to get her out. And it, all of these moments are meant to be, it's interesting, these are, these are the little cameo pieces that, will eventually bookend and slice into our biblical segments by broadly trying to create archetypes that connect through history between these these biblical figures and these right. group of people who just on, are on the edge of, of World War One. Yeah, and they and they are finding themselves at the break of war in inside of a uh, inside of a uh, a French uh, a French tavern, um, uh, and they. Uh, they they basically duke out the emotional stakes of the film later on because you have Nikolov trying to get into Marie's room and then Travis loses his shit. We also get one of our first talking sequences in these in this moment at the inn at the lodge here where it's um, drunken singing out of sync. Yeah, you can tell that that's that singer is either singing in a different language or singing a different song. Uh, by that sound sequence, it shows you the primitive nature and how they were trying to incorporate the sound into this. I think it's most glaring is when they're trying to do singing over wider shots, and it's clear that that sound does not match the scene. And and that, but that's not a point of mockery to me. You're actually watching people trying to figure it out. I was curious if it was a, an of its era version of ADR almost. That's that's what it it sounds to me how that proceeded because you have to keep in mind before the jazz singer there was a version of Don Juan with John Barrymore put out where they added sound effects and music. No talking, just sound effects and music. Mm-hmm. So they were adding like sword clanging and stuff like that. So this is another extension of that. You literally have ADR raspberries in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like one guy literally goes Pfft. as an ADR line. Yeah. It's, it's like it's it's one of the only audible lines in this movie is <laughs> and and that's that's kind of remarkable to kind of watch as a birthing process for the future of sound. And and but but oddly enough though, thankfully much of what would make this film amazing in the silent realm stays silent because you have these conflicts with Nikarov and Travis and the slashing of the hand and you get a yeah. work, you get a look of Curtiz's work in shadow like this this scene is very low lit that initial sequence yeah the sort of the kinetic 
nature of of a train derailing to an attempt at a sexual assault to this escape from this manner mm-hmm. is again in terms of of what people were expecting out of a Noah's Ark movie. It's yeah, a, exactly. It's, it, as a first act, it kind of it really it really plays up a much broader allegory about to some degree, yeah, like the the savagery of soldiers sometimes and yeah. and and the conditions that war creates and how you know innocence outside of your own home country can be preyed upon by nationalistic systems and it also seems in its own way to ex- extend into uh, a bit of xenophobia when it comes to russian uh the the russian yeah. viewpoint because nikarov is treated very much as a stereotype yeah. Vil- mustache twiddling villain whether it's codified intentionally or it's interesting to, th- to think of what his historical presence is because he starts the starts the film being with seemingly with the russians yeah and then getting on some level adopted by the allies because of the fall of the czar that's pretty much how it occurs. Yeah, yeah which which essentially means that he's yeah an anti-bolshevik or yeah. like not clearly not really a part of the yeah the social movements he, in russian at the time he, he's on our side but he's still a character that we can just uh shove into a corner mm-hmm. of of dastardly deeds <laughs> and um and they escape him and they make it to paris and the the conflict at that point becomes, you know, they stay there for a year, and Al's losing it, and he's going like, "I, just, I need to go to war, man. Like, yeah. I can't just sit here and be inactive. I have to do something." <laughs> Poor Al, Jesus, oh, you're God. you're a cab driver. You have no business. <laughs> <laughs> How did he get there? <laughs> there, yeah, there are questions. I I am certain they're in love. It's really my only. <laughs> Not and within the intention of the film, not sure that was there specifically, but it's within, like the movie Chasing Amy. <laughs> well, within this, the conceptual presentation of of performers and people who exist in performance circles, of the tenderness between that those men. Not to say it has to be that sort of relationship or concepts concept of themselves, but it is notable just in terms oh, yeah. of how how like how much they dote upon each other in those moments and how how tied their sense of self and like fate seems to be where yeah al al needs to go to war and yeah travis al- has a wife yeah exactly and <laughs> the, there's one all- of the great stories my buddy wants to go to war and, my, <laughs> and i got a wife <laughs> <laughs> i wish i could go play soldier but my wife won't let me <laughs> like there's also the the point of al having only one woman in his life and it's his picture of his mom in the battlefield which is a fun reverse on a trope like, yes. B- before the trope really existed, I guess. Going but... like, there's only one gal in my life. <laughs> Aww. But they, they seem to be happy in what is one of the few full sound-based audio sequences in the film, too. Yeah. They... Where you get, to, you get to hear Marie, you get to hear Ali, you get to hear Travis. You actually, it's it does a lot for you in actually kind of creating, I think. Not to say in of itself the affection you feel for them, but it's just it is nice to have that piece. There's relatability there. It mm-hmm. is like that is a good sound sequence that does the job that sound can do when it does when it does it well. And their performances are fine. That you know, I think you are watching you are watching the evolution. So you are watching actors learning a whole new method of acting. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the beautiful parts of of these part talky films is that you're watching actors either get it intuitively or trying to learn it in the process because mm-hmm. not everybody gets it right away. But then you also have, you get to all, you get to have the best of both worlds. You get to see 
what it's going to be and you also get to see what it was. Mm-hmm. And so like you see their acting style shift in between sequences depending on how the, the edit's going to be laid out. And I think that's exemplified actually when... So like Al goes to war and then Travis sees the whole line of soldiers marching off and he tells Marie like, look, I know I'm married to you, but I got to go do this for my bro and for my country. And leaves her right in the middle of a crowd in Paris. <laughs> I, love, says, I love that scene. <laughs> that, do you like the title card like I do? Where to? Who knows and cares? <laughs> yeah, there, there is a real vibe of, fuck it, here's a rifle. Yeah, Just, exactly. you'll, it's, you'll figure it out. It's, mm? it's the dark equivalent of that song that Mr. Toad and Cyril the Horse sing in uh, Ichabod and Mr. Toad. We're merrily, merrily, merrily on our way to nowhere in particular. Yeah, and but it, like... Not to, whether intentional or not, sort of the star-crossed nature of, like, following your buddy into war war like that. Yeah. Again, whether intentional or not, there's like, hey, here's some queer subtext here. Yeah. You're going to leave your wife to go run into a conflict that just started. Yeah. It's so weird. Like, you don't, I I didn't follow that in any of the in the pieces that were that, that I was yeah, able to find on this the, film. They attribute the language of it to nationalism or to like a sense of nationalistic pride, but it's again, it's their performance. It's the, the pro- physical proximity, not to say it's even romantic, but it's just, it is just a very tender relationship between two men. Yeah. It, I think if you wanted to look at it as an early bromance, I guess that could also be part of the mixture. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it doesn't have to fit entirely within a romantic concept of itself, but just, I think it is more indicative of, of the reality of, of being in performance circles of having that sort of latitude yeah, to actually yeah. like physically engage and also realistically engage with like people who lost comrades in war and yeah. like maybe their desire to like, yeah, I would like to give that guy a hook. Like, yeah. It, it's, it's unafraid to hit those boundaries. I think when sound comes in, it makes it more difficult for them to express that without, without fear of uh reprisal. Yeah. Because then now you have sound to back up your action and then those actions become more visceral. And also it means some of the myth-making behind maybe male physical association and sort of the perception of masculinity hadn't been as messed with no, in a no, societal no. It's context a, it's a, either, it's too. It's a firm rock that's uh, about as immovable as the mountains that Noah ascends <laughs> to later on in this picture. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, it's a very pointed, it's a pointed way to look at like how are these things seeped in whether uh, consciously or unconsciously. Mm-hmm. There is there is an image that we can perceive Based on the based on our interpretations, because art is art is an interpretive structure in itself. Yeah, and like the thing that is so weird about this film is that it's almost seeming like the commentary so on the surface you wouldn't be able to dig. But I love that you found another element that it's not necessarily intending, but it comes across because of the performers that we're dealing with. Yeah, and I think there's a component of like when you what do you think of that history inside film and, and media? It's not to say it's projection but it has to be on some level like by analysis yeah (laughs) because like it's hard to find examples that are explicit or that mean within the range of of any sort of pride or understanding oh no (laughs) yeah no there's no way there's no way that hitchcock in his silent era was would be able to make brokeback mountain i think Mm -hmm. it's like that's a very firm fact (laughs) but yet you do find these pieces and you also find the broad ways in which terror are presented and sexuality are presented mm-hmm. like that. I think that that comes across in great point because we get and violence too, because the violence in the war sequences with Nicholas 
or, or with not with Nicholas, sorry, with Travis and Al. It the war sequences with Travis and Al are visceral violence that Curtiz would become very known for in the sound world for like literally putting bullet holes into the in into the into the mix of a lot of his war films or mm-hmm. his action films. Like the realism aspect, this World War One sequence is pretty remarkably shot. I love the way it's billowing through smoke. Mm-hmm. And his perspective use is because re- you can tell that there's some some kind of rear projection going on or some kind of background play yeah. happening. And yet it feels so bled in that you could almost say like, well, no, maybe it's not rear projection. Maybe that is just the scale of the location they're working with and the sound uh, and the set that they're using, because there is like moments where the the background action is so visceral and so unre- feels so unrehearsed you yeah. could almost say either either they're allowed to kind of free move by the ad or by curtis shouting loud enough or this is just documentary footage that was found amid the the reco- the, the the war itself but it's also where we unfortunately see the end of our hero al or our co-hero al because our, our beautiful boy our beautiful boy who and now i guess travis has to go home and tell mom tell mama al that uh they, they do make yeah the interesting narrative decision of they both decide to pull out photos of their sweethearts travis <laughs> pulls out marie and we as a modern audience know that one travis of these is guys is fucked, fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh travis no you did it you did the thing you go back in time and just be like don't pull out that photograph <laughs> But then Allie pulls out, not to say solely or seemingly as a goof, but like, yeah, here's my photo. I have, I got a gal that's going to miss me. It's my mom, <laughs> which cool. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 Did not expect it to cost him his life. No, <laughs> did no, he didn't. Be- but then, but then you look back at all the times we see that and it goes like, when I get home, I'm going to propose to me- to Cindy Lou and yeah. everything's going to be happy. And then bam, they're hit by a transformer, mm-hmm. you know, because <laughs> I'm just thinking of the opening of transformers now because they're doing literally the same thing. They're talking about like, yeah. When I get off, when I get back from my rack, I'm, I'm going, about to retire. Yeah. I'm about to retire. What's that? A Decepticon for? <laughs> uh, oh, Michael Bay. Military's not working for anybody. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no. If it's not, if, if it's if it's not, it's, it's if it's not terrorism uh, from religious extremists, it's Transformers. Mm-hmm. Um. So, but yeah. then, Travis but, loses Al, <laughs> and then meanwhile, Marie is with an acting troupe. Uh, in Berlin at this point. So Marie is German. Yes. And is outside of her country and speaks perfect American, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But she <laughs> she has been fearful of the capacity for her to be viewed as some sort of mm-hmm. intelligence operative or, you know, just the general sentiment being against people of her culture. In fact, it was interesting, I think, in those moments of like, I gotta do it, baby. I gotta go to war. It's like you gotta go kill my childhood friends like you know you could just stay here yeah you could just stay here and not make yourself a part of it you could eat croissants and have sex what are you doing <laughs> what, are, what are you doing michael curtis is like i do not understand. i have an idea for a dialogue sequence in the film all right let me see it let's have sex and eat croissants travis michael we can't we can't shoot that as a sound sequence i can't even write that out on a card <laughs> But but you you told me when I came to this country that I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> I'm just saying we don't understand Travis's motivations if unless we answer this question on why he's not staying. In look France. look I I Michael Curtis will not have this. <laughs> <laughs> I came to this country with one goal in mind. 
to have a movie with a title card that said, let's have sex and eat croissants. <laughs> you're telling, you're ruining the American dream for me. <laughs> the big two of religious experiences. Well, that's why all people come to America, right? To have croissants and eat sex. <laughs> or no way, to have sex and eat croissants. What Noah's Ark's all about. No, no, that is true. Everybody forgets about the line. And then God said, thou shalt have plenty of croissants and plenty of sex. <laughs> It's not it's not readily read because not every, everybody just skims through the and book. God said freeze your butter so it makes <laughs> layers between the flour. It's not a Bible, it's a cooking book. Beautiful, beautiful layers. Everybody misread all the translations of the apostles. It was actually just an elaborate cookbook. There's a chapter on how to make the world's best pizza. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, but Marie's kinda in the wind too, because she yeah. She, Travis hasn't been able to contact her. He's bumming around Flanders or whatever battlefield <laughs> requires people to throw themselves at machine guns. Yeah, and so she's settled into an acting troupe with Myrna Loy. Ooh. Ooh. As a early sound Myrna Loy as a showgirl. Who comes back, right? In the she's, biblical sequence. She comes back as a slave, but I don't see her in any sequences. Oh, okay. Hmm. I, I, feel, I feel like that she's like, Amid all of the chaos. Yeah. Because there's a claim. We talked about John Wayne earlier. There's a claim that John Wayne and Andy Devine are extras in this movie during mm-hmm. the flood scene. <laughs> to which. <laughs> there's. Help. I'm drowning. Previous thoughts about John Wayne. Him sort of fearing for his life for 20 minutes as he's getting thrown around in a tank. Is that not, not I, my worst thought about John Wayne? Say, Pilgrim, could you help? <laughs> This is, this is the karmic weight of John Wayne. You're going to suffer before you're an asshole. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's just like, all right, before before you become America's favorite terrible <laughs> dad character, I'm going to <laughs> put you through the flood. Now, but no, but like that's that's the weird part is that there's early people. Myrtle Loy is credited mm-hmm. as a main player. Wow, they really do not focus on that at all. No, they don't. Like, she's listed among the main players. I think it's because she has a sound sequence in it. That's the thing we haven't discussed with this film, too, is that there is a significant part of this that either was just removed from the production, like, yeah, sequences with sound recorded with other performers. That just, yeah... it, it jumps think, around a little as a result. Yeah, it's a little uneven. Yeah, in a lot of concepts. As you said, it should have been about what one third future, two thirds Bible. One, yeah, one one third uh, present. One third future. <laughs> the future to Noah. You know, <laughs> I wanted to make a movie called Future Noah. Now. <laughs> Noah's a having space visions. Arc. <laughs> Someday there will be machine guns. It will suck. <laughs> not gonna be good for most people <laughs> someday robots <laughs> also bad they'll look like dogs but kind of scary dogs <laughs> will be a glorious and scary time for all i future noah predict mm-hmm. um now but the but we get the return of nikoloff who is as you told about us earlier he's now as you mentioned earlier he's now a uh a, a an agent with the u.s diplomats yeah so sort of a cossack who managed to like, yeah to, to succeed in the american ranks but he hasn't lost his terrible terrible man lust for women and uh it extends into him telling marie like i know 
I know who you are, and if you don't want me to make life terrible for you, you'll meet me here tonight. So she tries to escape, and then he plants documents on her to claim that she's a spy so that she can be shot. <laughs> Which is like the, like, given how you hear about war crimes and war atrocities, it sounds like a roundabout way of getting your point across. But it's the, it is sort of the silent era equivalent of like him slipping classified documents into her bag of like, I don't know, just sprinkling some crack around somebody like it, it's it's the big bold letters of confidential. Do not mm-hmm. open. Please, please, please. State yeah. secrets <laughs> is very, very boldly just placed into our undergarment bag. It's the, it's the modern military equivalent of, yeah, or I guess more police equivalent of like arresting somebody than just dropping a knife. What's that them. drugs in your bag? Yeah. That, like, <laughs> how did this get here? Oh, you touched it. Yep, <laughs> it's yours now. Yeah, guess you're gonna have to be put up against a post and shot, mm-hmm. which is what happens to her. And then the firing squad comes, but Travis is in the firing squad. Say <laughs> what? Oh my! Yeah, oh my god! A stroke of luck. And yeah. the minute and the minister's there too to give her her last rites. What? Which <laughs> what what luck? <laughs> it's 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 the it's it's the this is not a coincidence. We're all here, like. It's it's like the show Heroes where everybody's separated <laughs> out, but they have to come together by the end. <laughs> I guess they're all going to be in this park in New York, yeah, for yeah. the season finale. Yeah, and and uh, Zachary Quinto is in the background of Noah's Ark somewhere. We he he is uh, he he is uh, just a murderous supervillain. He has a dude. He looks like he's living forever. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, as they're about to do pull off the execution, uh, Travis goes, "No, that's my babe, right there, mm-hmm. right there, is my wife." Listen, guys, my wife. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> shooting my wife. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> if, it, if, if, if that Travis, was the sexual Travis, recording, if the Travis just went, "My wife." <laughs> They're like, all right, now we're not gonna do it. And also, George, that was hilarious. And also, George, George O'Brien, you're never gonna have a sound career after this because my wife, who would ever say that, and who would ever love it? Cut to 2006. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen being interviewed, like I was inspired by the political situation in America and also 1928's Noah's Ark. <laughs> In which he clearly should have said my wife, my, but the technology my, wasn't there. <laughs> Please don't shoot my wife. <laughs> God damn it. It's one of those it's one of those viruses our brains can't shake, isn't it? Where's the beef? My wife yeah. and um cash me outside. Mm-hmm. Those are the three things that live in our brain until the moment we are put in the ground. <laughs> Be an epitaph on the universe. <laughs> my wife. That's my that's my headstone now. My wife. <laughs> it's gonna make it's gonna make some random person going to another funeral very happy someday. <laughs> my wife. Because <laughs> anybody who doesn't get the joke is gonna think my wife's in there. <laughs> to jump into Me. the ground. <laughs> that would be. A really reductive for, for a woman headstone. <laughs> Me and my wife. <laughs> Devoted husband, loving fo- mother, my wife. <laughs> that's that's how Michael Curtiz buried his wife. Would have buried his wife had he lived longer than her. 
I'm really glad that George Burns never um, um, had Gracie interred with the uh, with with the with the plaque, uh, beloved comedian, devoted actress, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so funny, so disrespectful. <laughs> George Burns. I knew who Borat was. Funny man. I knew him in vaudeville. <laughs> But back to back to the shooting. They were they were very like, stop, don't shoot my wife. Yeah, don't shoot my wife. <laughs> and, and, and that's when you pointed this out because when I walked in here, you were rewatching the film a little bit more to get just to be caught up. And you pointed out like the 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 fate of this story depends on a very very fuck it gunner. Oh yeah, yeah to, to people who in in the modern media landscape, it's the. The Ant Man character in Endgame, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the catalyst for change. The, the, this rat, plot. the rat that, uh, yeah, that the pushes the pushes the button that enlarges Ant Man again. The rat from Avengers that saves everybody. Yeah, Th- this character apparently as a like German artillery gunner who's like, "Fuck it, this execution's not going fast enough," <laughs> and decides to while blowing Wilhelm the execution the, ground to hell. Wilhelm, the war will be over soon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but look, they're, they're destroying true love over there. <laughs> so many bullets. <laughs> they're destroying true Connor, I need to do this. If I'm going to lose this war, I at least want to save our relationship. It's anything Germany believes in its love. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You're right. Fire away. <laughs> it's, he fires directly on this execution ground, seemingly. And then it's uh, as they're shooting the guns, the music switched to Firework by Katy Perry. <laughs> let it burn and the whole uh all of them are like pushed into this uh into into this encampment of sorts so apparently cave of the winds is under this french yes cave of the wind yes (laughs) the many places i searched were the sets of noah's ark (laughs) the cave of forgotten my wives (laughs) the cave of forgotten wives it's a cool, desolate place where war has, has send seven them to the Morlocks when there is no conflict. In a way, as I abhor nature, I approve of the destruction of this landscape. <laughs> I can appreciate somebody again. Just like I, I think we're gonna lose this one. Can I just get rid of my bullets? <laughs> I'm just gonna. I want to walk out of the war with an empty shell, with, with an empty shell and a clean conscience. <laughs> I want to know I did something. <laughs> it's, it's like that joke in Jack Benny program. Like you joined the Navy, you had your head knocked out, you went out cold, and when you woke up, the war was over. <laughs> um, and then they're so they're now they're now buried underneath the rubble. And then this is when our pastor friend goes like, "We should." Pray for deliverance. Let's, yeah. let's, let's start believing in God now. We're, eh? se- we're seemingly fucked. Let's all pray. It's 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 like the y'all laughed at me. Y'all laughed at me. Yeah, there there is there is this acknowledgement seemingly that they are buried alive. Yeah, that is. And then he goes, you know, this reminds me of a story. <laughs> so essentially, the worst thing that could happen if you're buried expecting to die starts happening, which is somebody <laughs> pulling out a Bible and trying to make it make sense from that. Yeah. <laughs> And then and going like, but don't worry, this is going to be an elaborate one filled <laughs> with with grand production scale and massive human rights violations. He's like, I don't want to run out of oxygen listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> and then God said it was good. Oh God, start banging on a rock, <laughs> hit on a rock, man. <laughs> um, so he starts telling the story of Noah, and it fo- it unfolds pretty much 
uh as typical with the uh with uh, the king the the key the key villain in this piece uh being the king of uh, this this king who worships the god of Jagath um and their society is run on a very hedonistic scale maidens who refuse uh the king's wishes uh, of ja- or of Jagath's wishes are sold into slavery victims of war are tortured by being hung upside down the peasants feast on the on the suckling teat of this king the, the 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 shocking image of this movie is a bunch of peasants standing underneath a uh, board to get the meat juice. <laughs> it's very strange. But they're like, but meanwhile, out in the woods, Noah lives with his sons, Ham, Shem, and Jepeth. And Jepeth is in love with Miriam, the handmaiden of Noah's house. And then uh, they're they're like could, giving goo goo eyes in the woods. <laughs> you could imagine the old pastor be like, yes, it is son Jepeth who looked like you. <laughs> 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 and the handmaiden Miriam, who also looked like you, and then the big, big, mean king, who looked like you. <laughs> this, this Russian man who's seemingly dying—it's early Wizard of Oz. <laughs> the most weird dream, and you were there, and you were there, and there was a flood. And there was virgin sacrifices. And I'm glad to be home, Auntie M. <laughs> You're trying to localize the story. I get it. <laughs> King Nephilim looked like you. <laughs> and Did that horse looked like that one that's crushed underneath the rock. <laughs> this slave girl looked like Myrna Loy. <laughs> Who's Myrna Loy? Never you mind. <laughs> in other versions of this movie, I talk. <laughs> She'll be in a movie called The Thin Man. <laughs> this- the the pastor's rationale for like, here's I'm gonna tell the story of Noah is interesting. There's there's some a reference to like like God drowned the earth in a deluge of water. Yeah. So shall we drown in like a deluge of blood? Yeah. Which is just, again, it's, it's, it's like it's, listening to the past. It's like listening to Abe and Cooper in Red State. <laughs> there is really an element of like I think living through this period of just like you know it's just like what's happening right now. Noah's Ark. <laughs> Fucking what? Oh yeah, the deluge of MAGA hats that overwhelm our streets, just like Noah's Ark. God, I guess that phrasing actually does have a little more teeth now. Oh god, very sad. But yet, um, this is the thing though. I don't remember in the story of Noah a king of Jagath and of and this god Jagath. Um, like I didn't remember any of this. Like king. King, uh, I, I was trying to remember how they pronounce his name because it was like Nephilim or something like that. Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. King Nephilim is like, I don't remember this in the Bible at all, <laughs> but I, but I love that if, even if it's like an extension, it's used, it, it can't be like, cause it seems like he's trying to follow the Bible like to a T, but it's also just like, I don't remember any of this. I just remember that people mocked him and then he got in the boat and then people were begging for the boat ride. And they he was like, sorry, dude, later. <laughs> that was, I think, yeah, that was the element I didn't really do a very good <laughs> amount of research personally. I'm like, oh yeah, I don't remember the beats of this story it's enough hard, to know. <laughs> it was hard for me to want to get into the spirit of biblical research because I'm just like, we've got to dissect this World War One story first. <laughs> and it felt like them filling out what was more of a broad allegory than yeah. you know a, a direct intention behind some of the elements that it was yeah. kind of playing with um and even i think within that that sort of model for what the core allegory being of like okay this again this outset of violence that has comparatively a generational killing impact on multiple nations on the planet like is not 
it's not a bad turn of thought. Yeah. It's just, it, it is sort of an interesting measure presentation of equivalence because it requires you to, again, try to localize this biblical story in the context of like losing a bunch of sons. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's, there's a part of me that wonders how, how much of this is for comfort or for uh, distillation of ideas it's also one of those situations where it's like all right people know about eight stories which one can we be like it's like this all right yeah let's see can't do jonah because we can't afford a whale (laughs) (laughs) can't do shadrach meshach and abednego because the three stooges haven't been invented yet Mm -hmm. (laughs) um i i don't know noah's ark Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) there's eight universal stories it's spider-man versus rhino Moses, Moses, and them big rocks with words, and uh, um, this one, Batman v Superman, <laughs> <laughs> Dawn of Justice. Now, um, but then we, but we, Miriam gets taken though by um, out of the Noah's little pastoral village yeah. area or his like farmland or whatever to be taken in as a virgin <laughs> sacrifice. This is an interesting movie too. Where is Noah building the ark at the beginning? No, or, no, okay. he, he, no, he gets he gets the bush. He, he gets, just he, he gets, gets bushed. He gets the bush. He gets the fire bush, if okay. you will. And um and it but it's after Miriam has been kidnapped and uh Jepeth goes to save her and then he is uh blinded <laughs> with hot coals and forced to work in a stone mill. And you better believe I found a story about the uh, a few stories about the burn the eye gouging situation uh in, endured by one george o'brien um he uh he basically this is more examples again of curtis being less than tactful to a certain extent mm-hmm. um george o'brien had this to say about the hot poker scene when i was too blinded with a hot poker he said George, I want, he said, George, I want you to come very close, my boy. I want the audience to scream. And I'll tell you, I could feel the heat of that thing, an actual red hot iron. I screamed bloody murder, and I went through the rest of the picture acting blind. That was a terrible experience. (laughs) Now, you might be wondering, well, Curtis can't be this bad. There's no way that he could be this much of a monster and yet there is the story like for anybody who listens to this who also listens to secret history of hollywood this this story has been told multiple times but you know uh, on this picture there was a stunt man who fell down the temple steps the wrong way and curtis told him cut and said i'm gonna fall down like i want you to fall down and then he tumbled off catapulted himself off in a way that he had to go to the hospital and he got up and said now go over there after he got back from the hospital he went back to set and said no go over there and fall down like i show you <laughs> so that there is a real leader's lead <laughs> all right man that 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 that's kind of like mentality comes back into play in his in what the press describe him as when it comes to directing but mm. yes Japheth is blinded Miriam's taken to the sacrificial altar and this is when Noah is going like oh my son and my son's GF gone <laughs> hashtag boohoo and but then God is calling to him to the burning bush and he goes up toward the mountain and then the mountain which is a map painting explodes into this big readable stone text. Oh, I love that. Imperfect type font. It's a real cool effect, I think. And in, yeah. in, in the context of its time, just in terms of like a It's the miniature effect, man. It yeah. looks beautiful. 
even to the point of I love how they were trying to gather perspective of Noah down at the bottom and the stone tablet effect at the top mm-hmm. because we get stop motion animation in this movie. <laughs> we get a puppet Noah raising his hands <laughs> and it is adorable to look at. Not and I'm not denigrating it like I'm like, oh that's cute. It's just kind of like, man, like they really were trying to capture perspective. This was the best way they knew yeah, how. There's there's a storybook majesty to it. It's really like it's yeah. it's something novel when you're conceptualizing of the story, I'm sure. And I couldn't narrow down whether or not Fred Jackman was supervising this stop motion. I was trying to figure out, like, is there a stop motion animator that was working in Hollywood at this time that we now know as later? Like, and then he went on to work on King Kong, you know, like, like, is it Willis O'Brien? Who knows? But we, we didn't, I didn't find that out, but I love looking at it as an image and it still looks really good. Like as an effect. Yeah. Like you can tell it's a puppet, but I don't care because it, it, it blends well actually with the, actions that paul McAllister is giving us an actor with his arms mm-hmm. it's almost believable to a certain extent because of the speed <laughs> of an old man like raising his arms up and going like oh, e-text from god mm-hmm. in stone tablet form and then we get the whole thing going like you're gonna build a boat you're gonna put two of every animal in it and i'm mm-hmm. gonna flood this fucking world for all it's worth <laughs> <laughs> i'm done <laughs> peace dude right all of this fart world yeah. <laughs> i'm hauling ass to lollapalooza i, s- I sold the glowing mountain <laughs> it's a billboard for bucky's now <laughs> I've grown fed up with this world. <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing but vitriol, <laughs> false idols, and worst of all, the invention of Chick Fil A. <laughs> I sold all my miracles to Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> and so we get the, 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 the. He gets the instructions to build the ark, and we get the scene of uh nephilim <laughs> has sent a bunch of people to basically mock noah and to destroy this ark and it's mm-hmm. going like take shave off your build old man and turn it into a fishing net <laughs> like which is i love a biblical insult that's like a fun that. insult yeah that's a, i want to start using that one on the street <laughs> um and then of course noah's just like oh yeah hey god check this out and god's like you got it dude <laughs> <laughs> Now, granted, I can't do this to the people holding your blinded son. <laughs> but I can't, oh, oh, we'll get to it. <laughs> but when you're making my boat, believe me, you got some lightning <laughs> yeah, bolts exactly. on your side. I, if there's one thing, I, I, I may be inefficient when it comes to saving a human life, but you believe I'll save a boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except for the Titanic. Fuck that boat. <laughs> all, all of God's commands sound like a, like a drunk weekend dad idea. <laughs> Just like, we're going to build a boat. <laughs> We're going to put some animals on it. <laughs> How many kind? Two. <laughs> Got a lot of bone on the boat. <laughs> so we're supposed to have more zebras. <laughs> and then, and we, and we, and as they're doing that, Ham and Shem are going like, yo, why hasn't God delivered our brother? What's going on? <laughs> and Noah's just like, no questions. Build that boat. <laughs> Listen, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> And the, and the dawn of the sacrifice is approaching and we get this elaborate palace sequence of just like the ritual of sacrifice. Yeah. Just, it is dense. It is staged. It is just beautifully constructed as a piece of set design. This palace, I, I, this palace is 385 feet long and 85 feet high. <laughs> 
Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the size of the warehouse that Avatar is being shot in at this point, I'm sure. <laughs> like, th- this is a massive set. And to coordinate all those extras in there, that's chaos. There's a reason why Christopher Nolan made a bunch of them CG or inflatable balloons in The Dark Knight Rises. You can't afford that many people. The sort of... So, and and what we're, you know, leading toward when it comes to some of the more tragic things in connection to this film whether the intent is there, the reality of, of the scale that they're working, how many people are operating within this range and how many people are eventually going to have to deal with some pretty insane circumstances on this set. The grandiosity of those early moments kind of build it very, very effectively. And that's when we can start talking about this flood. So Dolores Costello, the star, had this to say about it for Kevin Brownlow's Hollywood documentary series. She called the filming of the scene brutal, and she referred to it as mud, blood, and flood. There was much blood. (laughs) A dark statement to hear from a a luminous actress of Golden Age Hollywood. There was blood. (laughs) (laughs) Like just a flat statement like that. And she went on to say, Mr. Curtiz had been told where the breakaway, which were the breakaway sets and which were the permanent parts of the set. And they had a longhorn steer in there and human beings and some dummies. But he put the human beings where the real set was and the dummies where the breakaway was because he wanted realism, as he called it. Now, let's Tarantino this and back it up a little bit. We have a battle with our honor, her humility plotting as, <laughs> as this scene goes on. Uh, and it was clear that Curtiz was intent on realism per uh, Alan K. Rhodes' book rather than practicality. Per the book, he says, a crew of 139 technicians constructed a system of three tanks holding 4 million gallons of water, or 1 million gallons under pressure, or possibly 800,000 gallons from a main reservoir, according to differing accounts from Jack Warner and Daryl Zanuck. Um, so it's a best of people telling stories going like, it was 20, feet, yeah. 20 million gallons. No, it was 500 million gallons. And uh, and these uh, this water would pour down myriad spillways, 140 of them, according to Zanuck, to then topple these columns. The large number of extras directed to take their place had no idea what was going to occur. Outraged when he discovered the plan, Hal Moore, the cinematographer, confronted Curtiz and Zanuck. I said, Jesus, where, what are you going to do about the extra people? He, Curtiz, said, oh, they're going to have to take their chances. I said, not as far as I'm concerned. I'll never have anything to do with a thing like that. They insisted they were going to do it the way they wanted to do it. So I told them to shove the picture and walked off the set. So how more walks? Then they bring in Barney McGill to then lead a procession of 14 cameras running simultaneously and nearly every incandescent light in Hollywood, seemingly, to light this scene. Now... The, the 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 stories that follow in this are maddening when you consider that how more in the book gives the impression that like we were under the assumption that the visual effects team by Fred Jackman were going to do a lot of this in miniature process shot etc and Curtiz is like no <laughs> fuck Fred Jackman I only like his puppet of Noah everything else <laughs> so there's there's a subset in like we encounter this a bit on film school, but just like wanting to view filmmaking or have a concept of filmmaking. That's more of an extreme sport or more like, what am I able to get away with? I feel like this is what happens when you hear a story of that kind of audacity. And you're a young person wanting to emulate that majesty. 
mm-hmm. is that you go down a seriously troubled path for like how far you're willing to go for your production. And I feel like that uh, that ambition has thankfully been staved off by CGI because now we have yeah. a way to do this practically and effectively on a budget. There, there are work practices that I again, there's there's pride worth having and having how they're being developed and have been developed, and even even the the Rust shooting recently was yeah. <clears throat> to some degree your thoughts on firearms on film sets and stuff. Now, like you know, people are going to have their own opinions on it. A bit of a very much an aberration, yeah. Like with within the range of of professionally handled, yeah. Like firearms work, it's abnormal for something like that to happen, yeah. And so, I mean, there's things worth being proud of, but there is kind of a microcosm, I think, in that response of like they're gonna have to take their chances. Of there's a component, I think, of film production and and both at the director and director level and at the producer level, of like, I won't say people are always going drunk with power. But there's an element of like, there's not as much critical analysis in relation to how people employ and use power in creative fields mm-hmm. as there are in more obvious politics, society, religion, or the military kind of I f- auspices. I feel like this, some of this can be boiled down to how much does the person believe them to be an artist incapable of being touched? Yeah. And I also think that this is something at a societal level that's not analyzed very often power if you have it within a sustained period of time changes your brain yeah changes how you think about people and environments (laughs) and when you're given as much power as critique is by this point you have been told you're the shit for directing hungary's first movie you are brought over to america and given virtually carte blanche to fulfill a dream that's been in your head you you feel like i can't do anything wrong Mm -hmm. yeah i can flood the set Nobody will get hurt. You also got to film a movie that answers to the largesse of a story that people have been conceptualizing since the beginning of like some yeah. versions of recorded history. And it's just like, yeah, you're going to maybe go a little nuts if you don't have a balancing force. Yeah. There. And th- I think that the best way to tell this is actually through the recollection. So Dolores Costello felt the mighty impact of the floodwater hit her stomach. Uh, and she later claimed to have contracted pneumonia. And keep in mind, in the movie, she's bound at an altar for sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and they're about to perform the sacrifice when then Noah comes in there and goes like, stop and repent now, fuckers, or else <laughs> Jehovah gonna shove you over. He you does know? the John McClane, but God has the gun behind their back. Yeah. <laughs> <And then> he, <laughs> he walks out. <laughs> What is it that Jehovah says? Oh yes, yippee kaye, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> Just that's that's the last phrase on the tablets here or on the mountain. Did you see King Nephilim falling like Alan Rickman and Tyrard mm-hmm. <laughs> off the Dagatomi Plaza. He actually gets a bit of that. There's yeah, not to get ahead. Does, not yeah. to get ahead. Yeah, but um, so but Dolores Costello felt this and claimed to have contracted the pneumonia, and um. Her quote on the matter was, I found a man leaning against my dressing room door. He was heavily bandaged. I said, what was wrong? He said, the 38 ambulances have left. I'm in better condition than most of them, and they're coming back for me. I think somebody's been killed. Now, that's important. I think someone has been killed. The rumor is that three people died on this set. There is no confirmation of any death. Anthony Slide, film historian, um, who, who can be most noted in my mind for appearing on a Marx Brothers documentary, <laughs> um, uh, said flat out that the general belief is that there is at least one confirmed fatality. 
it's impossible for me to think that there isn't at least one because unless the studio decides to clarify what's going on, we're kind of left to just assume. And there is virtually no documentation of this incident in the press. There is no documentation of the incident in Warner Brothers files. Uh, whatever was given to USC, Allen Road believes uh, that it may have either been omitted or lost over time. So it's either intentional or accidental. But any record of this event, uh, if it was made, was not to be found ever again. The other supposition is that a lot of this was covered up in the press. It's hard for me to make a determining factor in that because there is one piece of literature that comes out of a Hollywood column uh, by by a gentleman named Robin Coons, um, who basically supposes that Curtiz was among the brave in this regard and this is the this is what it is it's an article called spell of the game which was then syndicated later in uh 1929 a year after the premiere of the film it says a miracle of concentrated energy as director michael curtis the hungarian director who made it who in the making of the flood scenes of noah's ark shamed timorous extras in by himself plunging into the swirling deluge it was wintry weather and as a result he was taken severely ill but the experience seems to have daunted seems not to have daunted his enthusiasm and the later parts of the article goes towards uh uh, describing uh, a, another day within this year. The other day, under a warm summer sun, after a day of heartbreakingly slow progress on Fiesta scenes on his new picture, he stood on a platform straining his lungs in a long speech of directions to, gaily co- to the gaily costume mob. He scorned a, me- a megaphone. Leaping down, he was there, there, everywhere, about the massive set. When all was ready, he followed the cameras in there, perambulator shots of the festive scene eager tense excited triumphant as the action pleased his fancy he throws his body as well as his mind into his work there is movie concentration now that's funny because there is a source uh uh, from the set um uh cameraman byron haskins said that curtis the only thing that he was throwing into this deluge and in regards to his work was screaming at the extras from the sidelines and hurling two by fours at them. (laughs) Now, Byron was also very uh, animated and descriptive when it came to Curtis. So he may have exaggerated, but it sounds like this is something that is feasible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, George, this is, this is very, I know as, as a sort of a germ of, of sort of what we started maybe discussing this movie initially, such so many similarities yeah. to the the Twilight Zone tragedy and the conduct of yeah. some of the folks surrounding it, including John Landis and even a couple of our fun favorites, Mister Steven Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy. Yeah, and but just the almost the sort of like that's interesting about this is, and I think a reflection of its age too is like the the secondary myth making after the fact. Yeah, <laughs> about the the practices of this particular director, the guy's like, oh, he's hands on, he's kind of rough, but it's uh. Do you want to know how rough he is? Bueno, sure. <laughs> yeah, how how much more rougher he is? George O'Brien has two more pieces of uh, set accident attached to him. One of them very very prescient to today. 
Um, uh, it involved a collapsible spear that failed to collapse. Um, now, this George O'Brien said in the interview, the spear was supposed to disappear. It didn't disappear except into me. I was supposed to fall. I fell back and the blood started to roll out and I saw Curtis watching me. They wouldn't stop the camera in those days. Dolores Costello broke away and fell over me. She screamed, he stabbed, he stabbed. Finally, they said cut and Curtis said, don't touch him. Are you all right, George? Yes, I'm all right. I want to get the close up. So they ground away a few feet from me, really bleeding, and then I was picked up, and the doctor came, and he washed it out, and so forth. I had a pretty good tan, but under the lights, the wound showed, and they kept touching it up with body makeup. So if that's not enough, George O'Brien, during the flood, is attached more or less and tied to these boards, and the tops of both of his two big toenails are ripped off amid the process of being flooded. I didn't want to turn this into a Saw movie. It just became one on accident. <laughs> and this, so, you know, the actual death count being somewhat apocryphal, like that's, you know, it's terrible in of itself. But something that I think is really not addressed in this accounting is how many life altering injuries or even just like careers ended simply because of a very healthy sense of, well, fuck this. Yeah. Never, never doing this again. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a part of me that has to look at the, uh, the way safety and extras were dealt with in this place. Uh, Road in the book says during an era before workplace safety laws and labor unions, movie studios were virtually under no obligation to protect employees on set or on location. Safety was usually a determination made by the individual. The studio's attitude could be summed up by the adage, do you want the job or not? For instance, when the stuntman Joe Bonomo was assigned by Cecil B. DeMille to play a Christian slave who was thrown into a pit full of live alligators in the sign of the cross from 1932, the director reminded him just before rolling the camera, if any alligator gets you, the studio won't be responsible <laughs> and uh, a further elaboration is that extras get a day's pay and that's about it there were little training beyond being made up and told where to stand and when to move curtis specifically chose many of the extras based on their athletic heft local high school athletes and college football players were selected Jesus including <laughs> including john wayne and andy divine who were grateful for the cash hey thanks for my visit to Waterworld, mike <laughs> fantastic uh if anybody I, in terms I'm of anybody who work with jack benny <laughs> if anybody got a loose two by four like <laughs> hope it was john wayne and he's throwing two by fours and he's just like say that looks like a future racist <laughs> yeah <laughs> Bam. Let's see, watch me hit this brick shit house with this board <laughs> <laughs> um now uh all 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 joking aside within this all of this comes at the in in the in the big climax of this film, and the biggest part of it, as we talked about with George O'Brien and Dolores Costello being primarily involved, we get a combination of the practical real flood pouring in, and you watch all the extras struggling at points. It is harrowing. Yeah, yeah it is a harrowing watch. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult and uncomfortable to watch knowing these stories, and. The combination of that and the miniatures and the breakaway sets and process shots, it's very much a, a situation where it's very much, I feel like it's overwhelming. And the least of my concerns is the story of Jepeth and Miriam. 
until I watched it the second time. And um, uh, he blindly sifts through the flood like some sort of miracle uh, to uh, get to Miriam and save her. <laughs> and then as he finally approaches the ark and is about to board, that's when God gives him his sight back. <laughs> you got and, a boat. And it basically just made me think, so God's ability to perform human miracles is kind of like a transporter in Star Trek <laughs> where you have to be in range or otherwise the beam can't pull you back up to the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, move appreciate... a little to the left, Jabbeth. <laughs> he does do the old eye heel like sunbeam. <laughs> yeah. And it's just to fix things. <laughs> I, I also love that blind the blind finding finding Maurice segment of uh or Miriam in in biblical times the component of it that's like a new TikTok game where somebody like your friends stay quiet in a room and you're supposed to try to shoot him with a water gun while you have a a blindfold on <laughs> like, it very much was like I had seen a couple of those videos I think pretty recently so I was like oh this is fun like, <laughs> and now you look at the most extreme version of that directed by Michael Curtis mm-hmm. like, sure this is going to be safe so, so we're gonna dump yeah we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna dump a, like eight nine ten pulls of water on you and then yeah then you find him yeah and then uh the the, the entire uh blasphemous city of Jagath uh, or believers of Jagath and King Nephilim are drowned in this and King Nephilim tries to get onto the Ark and... Uh, he gets a thematically corresponding injury to one he got fighting Al and Travis yeah. in the future. Yeah, <laughs> and then and he he closes in on that hand being cut in the same way and Curtis goes, ha ha! <laughs> this and, means something. <laughs> and an ostrich in the audience goes, ha ha! <laughs> and then uh, we are brought into the Ark and then we are pulled back from the biblical era back into our underground tomb Mm-hmm. And um, and Paul McAllister, like, just just basically points out, and that's why we're all fucked. Everybody's like, "Cool story. We're still gonna die." No, but he, actually, what he says is, and I got the title card. There was that was the end of a world of lust and sin. God made his covenant, and the rainbow appeared in the heavens above this deluge of blood. And the graves of ten million men shall not a rainbow of a new covenant appear? The covenant of peace. <sighs> I appreciate God's like I flooded everybody now for a new gay age. (laughs) (laughs) Can you feel a brand new day? (laughs) I choose to believe every appearance of a rainbow is is God editorializing. (laughs) And going like I I, I, I do not like straight people any at all. I just want the plant to know that I want less of you, so you quit (laughs) fucking up my work. you a flood what more what more can i get this idea across um and then but then as they feel like well all is doomed and everything then uh i think it's an like something fires off and breaks away all the rocks um one of those rocks that falls as they're creating a hole to escape that that allows them to escape is that nikoloff uh gets crushed under one and (laughs) r.i.p nikoloff (laughs) um but yeah nikoloff dies and um, they are brought up to the surface and their celebration because the war is over. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that and our, our lovely German artillery man goes like, yes, I I'm, I know I'm going to have to face four crimes. <laughs> but for one moment, I saved romance. And then in the end, isn't that what war is really all about? 
Listen, I'm from Bavaria. <laughs> there we believe in love. And pretzels. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then uh, that's when uh, the minister goes, don't you understand it? It's the beginning of the, it is the beginning of the rainbow, the fulfillment of sacrifice. Travis then says, you mean there will be no more war? And the minister goes, oh, silly Billy. Uh, those, I mean that war is now an outlaw and will be hunted from the face of the earth. Those 10 million men have not died in vain. I got to say, I had a, I had a hearty guffaw after that. <laughs> <laughs> had a good raffle. <laughs> no, 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 that war is now an outlaw and will be hunted by the, from the face of the earth. <laughs> and not, yeah, not to be cynical, that was just a moment of like, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> tell me more, tell me more. Like, will there be another? Oh. Tell me more, tell me more. Will it involve... B24s uh-huh, dude. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was it was sort of in, interesting in the context of of sort of knowing what's happening elsewhere too of just like yeah I don't think I don't know if your uh, your historical concept of what's going on is pretty firm but also I think that that's the same theme of like uh, so like you know there was like the the great potato famine which really was the British fucking over the Irish but like that was the second one of those I feel like again a lot of people's understanding is like there can't be another one like, what, what, what no else could way. possibly happen what no could be, way that, but that but that's you you think that every time you go into an MCU movie there's no way <laughs> that they're going to be able to continue this story and then a post credit <laughs> sequence shows you one lone soldier uh, out in a battlefield after World War One has ended and then they're listing off all the prisoners of war and then they get over to a name, name on the list hitler adolf <laughs> and then the camera punches up to adolf hitler and then the, the credits cut to Soundgarden. like <laughs> wasn't that just how the world war one kingsman movie ended <laughs> i haven't <laughs> seen that i haven't seen it i hope not because <laughs> that's a dumb idea <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally th- it's it's literally I, I, my only image is literally that scene with Thanos and the Avengers going to challenge them is to court death and then you turn around and Hitler sitting in a throne looking like Josh Brolin <laughs> just just knowing the nature of film it's like yeah we're a few years out from yeah. that I'm sure yeah it, it's it's just like at the end of World War Two when uh, when you just suddenly like you, you it's it's like the beginning of Stranger Things four where you finally finger, figure out that David Harbour has been taken by the Soviets <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's the transition point for every every big war in American history has just been a big MCU event mm-hmm. that's what we have to realize um but then the film ends a Warner Brothers production probably mm-hmm. sure that we're not gonna see another world war I I literally <laughs> I literally wrote, wrote a note and this is I I said like random crowd noises signified the armistice the war is over until the sequel <laughs> <laughs> Noah's Ark 2 <laughs> a European boogaloo <laughs> at some point god yeah and I'm sure this is somebody's trying to crack this nut but of just like making the bible version of the MCU like that's what I always feel like was trying to be done by that one filmmaker that they uh, or that that pastor in Ed Wood who's just mm-hmm. like we want to make a series of 12 biblical films and then Ed Wood's just like what if grave robbers from outer space <laughs> <laughs> like I think somebody at Pure Flix is trying to conceive of that yeah and then just again just have Noah uh, Noah 
Godzilla come home after a big day in the flood and <laughs> you like Noah's Ark, get ready for ham vengeance. You just you just literally you have you have uh, Peter uh, come up to him and, uh, with an eye patch and go like, "You've become part of a bigger universe. Mm-hmm. You just don't know it yet." <laughs> that would be the funniest. Like, yeah, if it's if it's just Peter floating down from heaven, it's <laughs> an angel with a fucking eye patch. <laughs> Listen up, motherfucker! Start stepping into a larger world. <laughs> a larger Bible world. Natasha Romanoff has to go collect Jesus, who's hanging out in South America. Yeah, Jesus is your Captain America character. Oh, I was going to say the Hulk. <laughs> oh, okay. like when he's angry. Captain America's... I don't know. Who's our Judas here? Is it Scarlet Witch? <laughs> Am I believing multiverse of madness? Is period. So, Jesus is, the, is a man at a time. Yes. I, who are the? This is such a tangent. But it's like, what are the Bible Avengers? I need to know. Is Samson the Hulk? Is it kind of like a redemption thing? Yes, exactly. That's the secret. I've mm. always been a piece of shit. Yeah. God, don't throw rocks at me. Ellen Silvestri is just like I don't know how to score this. Now let's get into the reception of the film, though. Let's 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 bag it up here. So the film ended up being at 135 minutes into the premiere, and uh, following the premiere in 1928 and Hollywood, a uh, a bunch of editing was done and took out uh, about 30 minutes, leaving it to 105 minutes, including overture and exit music. And uh, the added sound scenes, as we reported earlier, were purportedly directed by Roy Del Luth. Cuts made. Um, after the premiere included the removal of talking scenes with Noah and the minister. So the, the I think that the actual story is, is that Curtis did direct some sound stuff, but then other sound stuff was added and other sound stuff was taken away. It felt like there was maybe a stronger point or connective thread between the two pieces mm-hmm. that was maybe missing from it. Yeah. And there was a mishap uh, during the premiere of this film in Chicago on April 9th, 1929. A glitch resulted in Al instead of Marie cooing to Travis. He said, kiss me again for France. The audience then howled with laughter. So it very much was singing in the rain. No, no. Yes, yes, mm. yes. That that whole scene. Um, the reception to this film had some reviews in brief. Uh, the New Yorker thought the film was an idiotic super spectacle. Uh, a British newspaper termed it a film of triumph and failure and believed that the dialogue during the Vitaphone sequences was ridiculous. <laughs> the New York Times uh, praised some of the imposing sequences but labeled the film as wearisome and remarked that Vitaphone lines exchanged by, by Costello and O'Brien were inept and frequently bordered on the ridiculous. Um, and... As a result of what we've just been talking about, I think like since we are talking about a biblical film, it is obvious to point out that this film's lasting legacy is tied to all the biblical epics that came out of the silent film era and the golden age of Hollywood, where we still find we that that thread has carried on throughout time as a biblical epic will sell. Like they, they do sell passion of the Christ had an yeah. audience for a reason. Yeah. Um, anybody, any, I mean, Darren Aronofsky's Noah's Ark, I don't think made a ton of money and whatnot, but it was enough. There's enough precedent for a studio to go, wait, Darren Aronofsky, you want to make a Bible movie? Sure. There's also precedence for the, not to say inherently dismissive kind of regard for it, but just sort of the, it's, it's such a messy allegory. Like, this whole movie, I think, is very much sort of trying to lean into being an oppositional piece in relation to what is kind of a 
to some degree a god is dead generation <laughs> like a uh, people people kind of heading into a depression out of a world war who have had their lives very fundamentally changed by science and mm-hmm. the progress of the world around them yeah and yeah i can understand a bit of a messy response yeah in that environment yeah now the but the but the biggest legacy that we've been talking about this whole time is the the safety aspect of everything mm-hmm. and the 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 thing that you read in all of this is that after this safety regulations were heavily implemented across hollywood thanks to this scene but there's no way of me to confirm how much was actually implemented because there's no press coverage holding anything accountable yeah there's really no direct connective tissue other than the timing it feels like and i can only and and the reason that i'm saying this i'm sure there's some historian out there going like well there's an answer you just got to dig deeper and it's like well Considering the resources I have access to and this as being an independent podcast, I'd rather not deal with that negativity and instead say, <laughs> if you have things to present to me, please present them to me. I will create an addendum where we bring this up <laughs> because I want all of this information to be accessible to a wide audience because they should have this because set safety is very important, especially if you're trying to make a motion picture of grand scale while being respectful to the people pouring their heart and soul into this production. And set safety seemingly gets better over time, but it really isn't until the Twilight Zone incident that things really take a turn and the whole industry is put under a microscope. Because... Now you have to deal with the fact that not just Vic Morrow, but a bunch of kids are killed in a helicopter crash. Yeah, and in that context, too, the sort of, and even the elements that, like, they end up being held legally culpable were more related to child labor laws than than the horrible, horrible thing they decided to do. (laughs) Yeah, which is, it's interesting how... It's 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 similar to in I don't know if I'm being flippant when I say this, so forgive me if I am, but it's like we got Capone on tax evasion, not on murder. Yeah. But the industry now has to be held accountable because of the Twilight Zone incident because the the media will cover that now. There is no truce between Hollywood and the media anymore. They will cover them. I know that every, every, everything seems to revolve around this idea like Hollywood controls the media and all this stuff. It's nonsense. Yeah. The media will report on Hollywood just as much as it does on any other. Like journalism covers all spectrums and grounds. The the capacity by which providing access was enough incentive, like enough incentive to make people not report on these things is yeah. Those days are yeah, gone. They, they those days are gone. It doesn't matter if you can have access to if, if you can have access to um, like Timothy Chalamet's trailer for an mm-hmm. afternoon to talk to or or getting the inside scoop on like yo I heard Brad Pitt did this that one time and oh my god like that and that that information getting spread around the day of a gossip columnist succeeding in this world doesn't exist the same way it used to yeah there <laughs> there weren't two competing Hollywood gossip columnists there's now a battalion of people scouring yeah, things yeah, all the time exactly so like this this information is out there but i found it interesting because in the time between the twilight zone and now we've had brandon lee die uh, on the set of the crow and we've had the rust shooting we've had stunt people die during the making of deadpool 2 mm-hmm. um we've had other set incident there was one on the dark night um with the truck stunt i believe so this keeps happening, and obviously there is a risk involved 
Yeah, there's when, definitely a life happens component. But there is a way to double check and double assure the safety. And unfortunately, what time keeps proving is that there's always some element of of production that seems to neglect that in favor of their vision or in favor of overworking your crew to make your days. Yeah, and I think a component of the transition of like the largesse of certain kinds of directors and certain concepts of what it means to lead a crew. The incidents in, in modern history past the Twilight Zone movies seem to be not, not to make it necessarily a point in blame, but they seem to be working crews too hard in combination with individual moments of mm-hmm. oversight or even if incompetence potentially. Yeah. But they're, they're manifest of, of, work practices and not necessarily the guiding components of the film itself. And yet at the same time, those like workplace uh, workplace unsafety stretches the gamut of overworking and dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. It's all tied in tandem to if there's a lesson that can be imparted in this episode, because this is the heavy episode, which is why (laughs) we had to break it up with the, my wife routine is that, there is a lot of ambition out there to create a film and do it practically and to do things that nobody else is doing to succeed because it's always existed. We always want to top the other person in front of us in order to make make a noise mm-hmm. like for, for yourself in this industry. You know, we have a film that's coming up on 100 years that we still don't know every single detail because of the way it was it was neatly put away (laughs) by the industry but we have the evidence we have the film evidence of it you can watch that flood footage on youtube for yourself you don't need to watch this whole movie even though you'll be missing out on al's wonderful story (laughs) um you will you will be able to see people are actually struggling to hang on to things and you can think to yourself oh that's incredible acting by those extras it's not because they were not told this would happen if you're going to pull that off, if you have to A, notify, B, gather consent, and C, you better make damn sure that the people who are going to be in that deluge are qualified to swim against a current of that nature, which it's a flood. Don't think anybody's really equipped for that necessarily. Yeah, the architecture of that decision does not exist with... Mm-hmm a person it exists with an entire group the production itself the all the performers in concert for how it's being done it's yeah it's i think there is kind of a you know not say like fascist quality to filmmaking but just like i understand the component of like necessity behind leadership having a through line in some of these decisions but yeah it's not it is not universal and it is not like a right Mm -hmm. You need to be checked. Like, I think the concepts behind sometimes an untamped creativity become this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can't, you, you, you have to recognize a similar reality that's being expounded upon within film fandom or like fanboy culture and whatnot, which is it's just a movie. And there are ways to make your dream a reality that don't put other people at risk physically or mentally mm-hmm. and how more i think is the actual hero of this story you, I, you can't 
you can't put Curtiz in any aspirational basket for this story to my mind. Yeah. Hmm. I understand that there's a way of not pigeonholing the artist, but this is a clear violation of safety and consideration that it doesn't mean I'm not going to be able to watch Casablanca again. That's not, that's not where I'm getting at, <laughs> but there is a thought in my head that will go on as like, cause I can still watch a John Landis movie too. Yeah. That's I, the thing. I, it is it is a core of not like intense shame, but just a little bit of like I Blues Brothers is one of my favorite films of all time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tough because that yeah. is the nature of that is the nature of some forms of, of versions of creative competence, but yeah, it's never been worth No. Never been worth a range of, of potential injury and death. Yeah. That it can elicit. I always I always look at uh I always look at it as a simple uh, I I love the stories that where people decide that I'm not going to put up with that. And it can actually go back to a secret history of Hollywood story that was told uh, by Adam regarding Sherlock Holmes. They had Nigel Bruce playing Watson and Alfred Worker was directing them in the second entry. And he was um, having Watson fall back on his back a bunch um, and one angle. And then he said, now we'll take the scene again with you holding the gun. And at one point, he was so banged up that he called up the producer and told him, like, this this guy is trying to kill me. And the producer basically said, like, told him, walk off that set. Like, you're done for the you're done for the day. We'll see you tomorrow. And then he said goodbye to Basil because they were friends, basically told Alfred Worker by walking off to go fuck himself. And he later said my back was numb for a month. I could barely feel anything. Mm-hmm. But at least the producer, when hearing about that, said, uh, no, go home. You're you're done for the day. That's not right. That's not going to happen again. But unfortunately, how more, as much as I ad- admire him for walking off the set and saying, like, I'm not putting up with this. I'm done. Unfortunately, that was never going to stop Zanuck or Curtiz from pulling this off. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that thankfully dies with the silent era is the amount of danger that people are put in. I miss yeah. the you miss the artistry, you miss the idea of pantomime, you miss expressionism at its full force without the burden of sound. The new frontiers people are reaching for every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't miss people recklessly losing their lives for the sake of art. And Without getting too personal, I don't think anybody should have to suffer to make art or to watch art. And this is an example of when you watch art, you do feel the pain of people who were hurt terribly and possibly lost their lives. And that's a hard thing to talk about. But I think what we've gotten down is, is that there is a lesson from as far back as over nearly 100 years ago that clearly defines the unsuitability of any onset accident that cannot be explained by life happens. If you find out more about that incident and realize it's, it's more than just an actual accident, there's a piece of evidence to say, well, this has never been good. It will never be good. (laughs) So why do people keep doing this? And the answer does come down to this folly of ambition. And it's, it's a, I guess it's a cry out to directors to just please take a chill pill 
and get off the cloud and realize it's only a movie. Yeah. The arts don't give you a pass. Yeah. You, if any any creative endeavor, you're you're responsible if you're running it to make yeah. sure that it's to perform safely. Yeah. Doesn't matter the circumstance. And on that note, Andrew, thank you for joining us to talk yeah. about a very heavy subject. But we should have you back to talk about White Heat. Have a little bit of fun with uh, psychotic <laughs> gangsters and Jimmy Cagney and oh, man. random outbursts and whatnot. We haven't done a gangster film in two years, uh, or except for you and me, but that's also kind of like a weird love melodrama. It's a bit of a hybrid, yeah. It's not the same. We need an actual gangster movie, and I need my one of my best friends in the world to tone yeah, it. Yeah, so. I'd love to be back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but really quickly, let people know where they can find you or uh, if you want them to find you. Uh, I'm, on, <laughs> I'm on Twitter as much as maybe anything these days uh bueno 24 7 is the handle and uh i'm tiptoeing back into stand-up again so if you feel like you want me to come goof around your city let me know yeah (laughs) goofing in your city Mm -hmm. that's your netflix special just yeah not even performing just sort of doing loose conceptual stuff on the streets (laughs) you're gonna recreate the entire flood of noah's ark with just (laughs) just one bucket of water just throwing buckets of water (laughs) just random ingenues you just you just do that and just go i'm michael (laughs) (laughs) curtis then you put on a little mustache and go and i'm darren (laughs) (laughs) sanic You, you're Trojo Bryant. <laughs> I don't know if you knew how you fit into this, but here it goes. <laughs> Thank you again, buddy. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the show. Coming up on the program, uh, we're entering the Ballyboo. Four weeks of horror, maybe even five weeks. When, and Do you want to know what's going to happen? I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm going to give you the full breakdown right now. If we're going to start off with the return of Smokey and the introduction of Ben Taylorson for a breakdown of The Incredible Shrinking Man. That's right, the horror of growing smaller and smaller by the minute and the day. Then we're going to move into The Creature from the Black Lagoon with the return of Chloe and Aaron from Required Viewing. Then we are going to take a trip to Radioland to learn more about the Mercury Theater on the Air and their production of Dracula with our return guest James Scully from Breaking Walls. And to cap it all off, this has just been booked, We are going to tackle the OG vampire, the one that really started it all, Mr. Max Shrek in F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu. So we're getting more silent talk coming to the show. And in November, look out for two massive discussions, both involving involving Tyler, maybe. (laughs) We're going to do Disney in the 30s, covering the shorts that brought Disney Studio to the prominence. We're also going to probably be doing a side episode fully dedicated to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and the birth of the animated feature. And Tyler and I will be going back down to the Marx Brothers territory again for a look at their work at MGM and then their one outing at RKO. It's the Thalberg years and the misguided step of room service. All that and more coming. But until all of this and until next time, folks, good night. And remember, my wife. Bye, Ballyhoo. (laughs) Bye, (laughs) Ballyhoo. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast.
This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Thank <laughs> you.